0: This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. It was first published in 1820. It's read for us by Chip from LibriVox, and it runs... One hour, twenty-three
1: minutes. We will be discussing it afterwards. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Chip in Tampa, Florida on January 24th, 2006. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. By Washington Irving Found among the papers of the late Dietrich Knickerbocker A pleasing land of drowsy head it was, Of dreams that wave before the half-shut eye, And of gay castles in the clouds that pass, Forever flushing round the summer sky. From Castle of Indolence in the bosom of one of those spacious coves which indent the eastern shore of the Hudson at that broad expansion of the river denominated by the ancient Dutch navigators, the Tapanzee, and where they always prudently shortened sail and implored the protection of St. Nicholas when they crossed, there lies a small market-town or rural port, which by some is called Greensburg, but which is more generally and properly known by the name of Tarrytown. This name was given, we are told, in former days by the good housewives of the adjacent country, from the inveterate propensity of their husbands to linger about the village tavern on market days. Be that as it may, I do not vouch for the fact, but merely advert to it, for the sake of being precise and authentic.' not far from this village perhaps about two miles there is a little valley or rather lap of land among high hills which is one of the quietest places in the whole world a small brook glides through it with just murmur enough to lull one into repose, and the occasional whistle of a quail or tapping of a woodpecker is almost the only sound that ever breaks in upon the uniform tranquillity. I recollect that, when a stripling my first exploit in squirrel-shooting was in a grove of tall walnut-trees that shades one side of the valley, I had wandered into it at noontime when all nature is peculiarly quiet. "'and was startled by the roar of my own gun "'as it broke the Sabbath stillness around, "'and was prolonged and reverberated by the angry echoes. "'If ever I should wish for a retreat "'whither I might steal from the world and its distractions "'and dream quietly away the remnant of a troubled life, "'I know of none more promising than this little valley.' From the listless repose of the place, and the peculiar character of its inhabitants, who are descendants from the original Dutch settlers, this sequestered glen has long been known by the name of Sleepy Hollow, and its rustic lads are called the Sleepy Hollow Boys throughout all the neighboring country. A drowsy, dreamy influence seems to hang over the land, and to pervade the very atmosphere. Some say that the place was bewitched by a high German doctor during the early days of the settlement, others that an old Indian chief, the prophet or wizard of his tribe, held his powwows there before the country was discovered by Master Henrik Hudson. Certain it is that the place still continues under the sway of some witching power that holds a spell over the minds of the good people, causing them to walk in a continual reverie they are given to all kinds of marvellous beliefs are subject to trances and visions and frequently see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air the whole neighbourhood abounds with local tales haunted spots and twilight superstitions stars shoot and meteors glare oftener across the valley than in any other part of the country and the nightmare with her whole ninefold seems to make it the favorite scene of her gambols. The dominant spirit, however, that haunts this enchanted region, and seems to be commander-in-chief of all the powers of the air, is the apparition of a figure on horseback without a head. It is said by some to be the ghost of a Hessian trooper, whose head had been carried away by a cannonball in some nameless battle during the Revolutionary War, and who is ever and anon seen by the country-folk hurrying along in the gloom of night as if on the wings of the wind. His haunts are not confined to the valley, but extend at times to the adjacent roads, and especially to the vicinity of a church at no great distance. Indeed, certain of the most authentic historians of these parts, who have been careful in collecting and collating the floating facts concerning this spectre, allege that, the body of the trooper, having been buried in the churchyard, the ghost rides forth to the scene of battle in nightly quest of his head, and that the rushing speed with which he sometimes passes along the hollow, like a midnight blast, is owing to his being belated, and in a hurry, to get back to the churchyard before daybreak. Such is the general purport of this legendary superstition, which has furnished materials for many a wild story in that region of shadows, and the specter is known at all the country firesides by the name of the Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow. It is remarkable that the visionary propensity I have mentioned is not confined to the native inhabitants of the valley, but is unconsciously imbibed by everyone who resides there for a time. However wide awake they may have been before they entered that sleepy region, they are sure, in a little time, to inhale the witching influence of the air, and begin to grow imaginative, to dream dreams, to see. Apparitions. I mention this peaceful spot with all possible laud, for it is in such little retired Dutch valleys, found here and there embosomed in the great state of New York, that population, manners, and customs remain fixed, while the great torrent of migration and improvement, which is making such incessant changes in other parts of this restless country, sweeps by them unobserved. They are like those little nooks of still water which border a rapid stream, where we may see the straw and bubble riding quietly at anchor, or slowly revolving in their mimic harbour, undisturbed by the rush of the passing current. Though many years have elapsed since I trod the drowsy shades of Sleepy Hollow, yet I question whether I should not still find the same trees— and the same families vegetating in its sheltered bosom. In this by-place of nature there abode, in a remote period of American history, that is to say some thirty years since, a worthy wight of the name of Ichabod Crane, who sojourned, or, as he expressed it, tarried in Sleepy Hollow, for the purpose of instructing the children of the vicinity. He was a native of Connecticut, a state which supplies the Union with pioneers for the mind as well as for the forest, and sends forth yearly its legions of frontier woodmen and country schoolmasters. The cognomen of Crane was not inapplicable to his person. He was tall but exceedingly lank, with narrow shoulders, long arms and legs, hands that dangled a mile out of his sleeves— feet that might have served for shovels, and his whole frame most loosely hung together. His head was small and flat atop, at with huge ears, large green glassy eyes, and a long snipe nose, so that it looked like a weathercock perched atop his spindle-neck, to tell which way the wind blew. To see him striding along the profile of a hill on a windy day, with his clothes bagging and fluttering about him. One might have mistaken him for the genius of famine descending upon the earth, or some scarecrow eloped from a cornfield. His schoolhouse was a low building of one large room, rudely constructed of logs, the windows partly glazed and partly patched with leaves of old copy-books. It was most ingeniously secured at vacant hours by a withe twisted in the handle of the door, and stakes set against the window-shutters, so that, though a thief might get in with perfect ease, he would find some embarrassment in getting out, an idea most probably borrowed by the architect Joost van Houten from the mystery of an eel-pot the schoolhouse stood in a rather lonely but pleasant situation just at the foot of a woody hill with a brook running close by and a formidable birch-tree growing at one end of it from hence the low murmur of his pupils voices conning over their lessons, might be heard on a drowsy summer's day, like the hum of a beehive, interrupted now and then by the authoritative voice of the master, in the tone of menace or command, or peradventure by the appalling sound of the birch, as he urged some tardy loiterer along the flowery path of knowledge. Truth to say, he was a conscientious man, and ever bore in mind the golden maxim, Spare the rod, and spoil the child. Ichabod Crane's scholars certainly were not spoiled. I would not have it imagined, however, that he was one of those cruel potentates of the school who joy in the smart of their subjects. On the contrary, he administered justice with discrimination rather than severity. "'taking the burden off the backs of the weak "'and laying it on those of the strong. "'Your mere puny stripling, "'that winced at the least flourish of the rod, "'was passed by with indulgence, "'but the claims of justice were satisfied "'by inflicting a double portion "'on some little tough, wrong-headed, "'broad-skirted Dutch urchin "'who sulked and swelled "'and grew dogged and sullen beneath the birch. "'All this he called doing his duty by their parents, and he never inflicted a chastisement without following it by the assurance so consolatory to the smarting urchin that he would remember it and thank him for it the longest day he had to live. When school-hours were over, he was even the companion and playmate of the larger boys, and on holiday afternoons would convoy some of the smaller ones home, who happened to have pretty sisters, or good housewives for mothers, noted for the comforts of their cupboard. Indeed, it behooved him to keep on good terms with his pupils. The revenue arising from his school was small, and would have been scarcely sufficient to furnish him with daily bread— For he was a huge feeder, and, though lank, he had the dilating powers of an anaconda, but, to help out his maintenance, he was, according to country custom in those parts, boarded and lodged at the houses of the farmers whose children he instructed. With these he lived successively a week at a time, thus going the rounds of the neighbourhood, with all his worldly effects tied up in a cotton handkerchief. That all this might not be too onerous on the purses of his rustic patrons, who are apt to consider the costs of schooling a grievous burden, and schoolmasters as mere drones, he had various ways of rendering himself both useful and agreeable. He assisted the farmers occasionally in the lighter labours of their farms, helped to make hay, mended the fences, took the horses to water, drove the cows from pasture, and cut wood for the winter fire. He laid aside, too, all the dominant dignity and absolute sway with which he lorded it in his little empire, the school, and became wonderfully gentle and ingratiating. He found favor in the eyes of the mothers by petting the children, particularly the youngest, and, like the lion bold which will whom so magnanimously the lamb did hold, he would sit with a child upon one knee and rock a cradle with his foot for hours together." In addition to his other vocations, he was the singing-master of the neighborhood, and picked up many bright shillings by instructing the young folks in psalmody. It was a matter of no little vanity to him on Sundays to take his station in front of the church gallery with a band of chosen singers, where, in his own mind, he completely carried away the palm from the parson. Certain it is, his voice resounded far above all the rest of the congregation, and there are particular quavers still to be heard in that church, and which may even be heard a half-mile off, quite to the opposite side of the mill-pond on a still Sunday morning, which are said to be legitimately descended from the nose of Ichabod Crane.' Thus by divers little makeshifts, and in that ingenious way which is commonly denominated by hook and by crook, the worthy pedagogue got on tolerably enough, and was thought by all who understood nothing of the labor of headwork, to have a wonderfully easy life of it. The schoolmaster is generally a man of some importance in the female circle of a rural neighbourhood, being considered a kind of idle, gentlemanly personage, of vastly superior taste and accomplishments to the rough country swains, and, indeed, inferior in learning only to the parson. His appearance, therefore, is apt to occasion some little stir at the tea-table of a farmhouse and the addition of a supernumerary dish of cakes or sweetmeats or peradventure the parade of a silver teapot our man of letters therefore was peculiarly happy in the smiles of all the country damsels how he would figure among them in the churchyard between services on sundays gathering grapes for them in the wild vines that overran the surrounding trees, reciting for their amusement all the epitaphs on the tombstones, or sauntering with a whole bevy of them along the banks of the adjacent mill pond, while the more bashful country bumpkins hung sheepishly back, envying his superior elegance and address. From his half-itinerant life also he was a kind of travelling gazette, carrying the whole budget of local gossip from house to house, so that his appearance was always greeted with satisfaction. He was, moreover, esteemed by the women as a man of great erudition, for he had read several books quite through, and was the perfect master of Cotton Mather's History of New England Witchcraft, in which, by the way, he most firmly and potently believed. He was, in fact, an odd mixture of shrewdness and simple credulity. His appetite for the marvellous and his powers of digesting it were equally extraordinary, and both had been increased by his residence in this spellbound region. No tale was too gross or monstrous for this capricious swallow. It was often his delight, after his school was dismissed in the afternoon, to stretch himself on the rich bed of clover bordering the little brook that whimpered by his schoolhouse, and there con over old Mather's direful tales, until the gathering dusk of evening made the printed page a mere mist before his eyes. Then, as he wended his way by swamp and stream and awful woodland to the farmhouse where he happened to be quartered, every sound of nature at that witching hour fluttered and excited imagination. The moan of the whip-poor-will from the hillside, the boding cry of the tree-toad, that harbinger of storm, the dreary hooting of the screech-owl, or the sudden rustling in the thicket of birds frightened from their roost. The fireflies, too, which sparkled most vividly in the darkest place now and then startled him, as one of uncommon brightness would stream across his path, and if by chance a huge blockhead of a beetle came winging his blundering flight against him, the poor varlet was ready to give up the ghost with the idea that he was struck with a witch's token.' His only resource on such occasions, either to drown thought or drive away evil spirits, was to sing psalm-tunes, and the good people of Sleepy Hollow, as they sat by their doors of an evening, were often filled with awe at hearing his nasal melody, in linked sweetness long drawn out, floating from the distant hill or along the dusky road. Another of his sources of fearful pleasure was to pass long winter evenings with the old Dutch wives as they sat spinning by the fire, with a row of apples roasting and spluttering along the hearth, and to listen to their marvellous tales of ghosts and goblins and haunted fields and haunted brooks and haunted bridges and haunted houses and— particularly of the Headless Horseman, or Galloping Hessian of the Hollow, as they sometimes called him. "'He would delight them equally by his anecdotes of witchcraft "'and of the direful omens and portentous sights and sounds in the air "'which prevailed in the earlier times of Connecticut, "'and would frighten them woefully with speculations upon comets and shooting stars, "'and with the alarming fact that the world did absolutely turn around, "'and that they were half the time topsy-turvy.' But if there were a pleasure in all this, while snuggling, cuddling in the chimney-corner of a chamber that was all of a ruddy glow from the crackling wood-fire, and where, of course, no spectre dared to show its face, it was dearly purchased by the terrors of his subsequent walk homeward. What fearful shapes and shadows beset this path amid the dim and ghastly glare of a snowy night! With what wistful look did he eye every trembling ray of light streaming across the waste-fields from some distant window? How often was he appalled by some shrub covered with snow which, like a sheeted spectre, beset his very path? How often did he shrink with curdling awe at the sound of his own steps on the frosty crust beneath his feet? and dread to look over his shoulder, lest he should behold some uncouth being tramping close behind him! And how often was he thrown into complete dismay by some rushing blast, howling among the trees, in the idea that it was the galloping Hessian of one of his nightly scourings! All these, however, were mere terrors of the night, Phantoms of the mind that walk in darkness. And though he had seen many spectres in his time, And had been more than once beset by Satan In divers shapes in his lonely perambulations, Yet daylight put an end to all these evils, And he would have passed a pleasant life of it, In spite of the devil and all his works, If his path had not been crossed By a being that causes... "'more perplexity to mortal man than ghosts, goblins, and the whole race of witches put together, "'and that was a woman.' "'Among the musical disciples who assembled one evening each week to receive his instructions in psalmody "'was Katrina van Tassel, the daughter and only child of a substantial Dutch farmer.' She was a blooming lass, of fresh eighteen, plump as a partridge, ripe and melting, and rosy-cheeked as one of her father's peaches, and universally famed not merely for her beauty, but her vast expectations. She was withal a little of a coquette, as might be perceived even in her dress, which was a mixture of ancient and modern fashions, as most suited to set off her charms. She wore the ornaments of pure yellow gold which her great-great-grandmother had brought over from Sardam, the tempting stomacher of the olden time, and withal a provokingly short petticoat, to display the prettiest foot and ankle in the country round. Ichabod Crane had a soft and foolish heart towards the sex, and it is not to be wondered that so tempting a morsel soon found favour in his eyes, more especially after he had visited her in her paternal mansion. Old Baltus von Tassel was a perfect picture of a thriving, contented, liberal-hearted farmer. He seldom, it is true, sent either his eyes or his thoughts beyond the boundaries of his own farm, but within those everything was snug, happy, and well-conditioned. He was satisfied with his wealth, but not proud of it, and piqued himself upon the hearty abundance rather than the style in which he lived his stronghold was situated on the banks of the hudson in one of those green sheltered fertile nooks in which the dutch farmers are so fond of nestling a great elm tree had spread its broad branches over it at the foot of which bubbled up a spring of the softest and sweetest water in a little well formed of a barrel and then stole sparkling away through the grass to a neighbouring brook that babbled among the alders and dwarf willows hard by the farmhouse was a vast barn that might have served for a church every window and crevice of which seemed bursting forth with the treasures of the farm the flail was busily resounding within it from morning till night swallows and martins skimmed twittering about the eaves and rows of pigeons some with one eye turned up as if watching the weather some with their heads under their wings or buried in their bosoms and others swelling and cooing and bowing about their dames were enjoying the sunshine on the roof sleek unwieldy porkers were grunting in the repose and abundance of their pens from which sallied forth now and then troops of sucking pigs as if to snuff the air a stately squadron of snowy geese were riding in an adjoining pond convoying whole fleets of ducks regiments of turkeys were gobbling through the farmyard and guinea-fowls fretting about it like ill-tempered housewives with their peevish discontented cry Before the barn-door strutted the gallant cock, that pattern of a husband, a warrior, and a fine gentleman, clapping his burnished wings and crowing in the pride and gladness of his heart, sometimes tearing up the earth with his feet, and then generously calling his ever-hungry family of wives and children to enjoy the rich morsel which he had discovered.' The pedagogue's mouth watered as he looked upon this sumptuous promise of luxurious winter fare. In his devouring mind's eye he pictured to himself every roasting pig running about with a pudding in his belly and an apple in his mouth the pigeons were snugly put to bed in a comfortable pie and tucked in with a coverlet of crust the geese were swimming in their own gravy and the ducks paring cosily in dishes like snug married couples with a decent competency of onion sauce in the porkers he saw carved out the future sleek side of bacon and juicy relishing ham not a turkey but he beheld daintily trussed up with its gizzard under its wing and Peradventure a necklace of savoury sausages, and even bright Chanticleer himself lay sprawling on his back in a side-dish, with uplifted claws as if craving that quarter which his chivalrous spirit disdained to ask while living. As the enraptured Ichabod fancied all this, and as he rolled his great green eyes over the fat meadowlands, the rich fields of wheat, of rye, of buckwheat, and Indian corn, and the orchards burdened with ruddy fruit which surrounded the warm tenement of Van Tassel, his heart yearned after the damsel who was to inherit these domains, and his imagination expanded with the idea how they might be readily turned into cash and the money invested in immense tracts of wild land and shingle palaces in the wilderness nay his busy fancy already realized his hopes and presented to him the blooming katrina with a whole family of children mounted on top of the wagon "'loaded with household trumpery, with pots and kettles dangling beneath, "'and he beheld himself astride a pacing mare, with a colt at her heels, "'setting out for Kentucky, Tennessee, or the Lord knows where. "'When he entered the house the conquest of his heart was complete. "'It was one of those spacious farmhouses with high-ridged but lowly sloping roofs— Built in the style handed down from the first Dutch settlers, the low projecting eaves forming a piazza along the front, capable of being closed up in bad weather. Under this were hung flails, harness, various utensils of husbandry, and nets for fishing in the neighboring river. Benches were built along the sides for summer use, and a great spinning-wheel at one end, and a churn at the other, showed the various uses to which this important porch might be devoted. From this piazza the wandering Ichabod entered the hall which formed the center of the mansion, and the place of usual residence here rows of resplendent pewter ranged on a long dresser dazzled his eyes in one corner hung a huge bag of wool ready to be spun in another a quantity of linsey-woolsey just from the loom ears of indian corn and strings of dried apples and peaches hung in gay festoons along the walls mingled with the gaud of red peppers and the door left ajar "'gave him a peep into the best parlor "'where the claw-footed chairs and dark mahogany tables "'shone like mirrors. "'Andirons, with their accompanying shovel and tongs, "'glistened from their covert of asparagus tops. "'Mock oranges and conch-shells decorated the mantelpiece. "'Strings of various colored bird-eggs were suspended above it. "'A great ostrich egg was hung from the center of the room, "'and a corner cupboard.' knowingly left open, displayed immense treasures of old silver and well-mended china. From the moment Ichabod laid his eyes upon these regions of delight, the peace of his mind was at an end, and his only study was how to gain the affections of the peerless daughter of Van Tassel, In this enterprise, however, he had more real difficulties than generally fell to the lot of a knight-errant of yore, who seldom had anything but giants, enchanters, fiery dragons, and such-like easily conquered adversaries to contend with, and had to make his way merely through gates of iron and brass, and walls of adamant to the castle-keep, where the lady of his heart was confined all of which he achieved as easily as a man would carve his way to the centre of a Christmas-pie, and then the lady gave him her hand as a matter of course. Ichabod, on the contrary, had to win his way to the heart of a country coquette, beset with a labyrinth of whims and caprices, which were for ever presenting new difficulties and impediments, and he had to encounter a host of fearful adversaries of real flesh and blood, the numerous rustic admirers who beset every portal to her heart, keeping a watchful and angry eye upon each other, but ready to fly out in common cause against any new competitor. Among these the most formidable was a burly, roaring, roistering blade of the name of Abraham— or, according to the Dutch abbreviation, Bram van Brunt, the hero of the country round, which ranged with his feats of strength and hardihood, He was broad-shouldered and double-jointed, with short curly black hair and a bluff, but not unpleasant countenance, having a mingled air of fun and arrogance. From his Herculean frame and great powers of limb he had received the nickname... Brom Bones, by which he was universally known. He was famed for great knowledge and skill in horsemanship, being as dexterous on horseback as a tartar. He was foremost at all races and cock-fights, and with the ascendancy which bodily strength always acquires in rustic life, he was the umpire in all disputes— "'setting his hat on one side, and giving his decisions with an air and tone that admitted to no gainsay or appeal. "'He was always ready for either a fight or a frolic, but had more mischief than ill-will in his composition, "'and with all his overbearing roughness there was a strong dash of waggish good-humour at bottom.' He had three or four boon-companions who regarded him as their model, and at the head of whom he scoured the country, attending every scene of feud or merriment for miles around. In cold weather he was distinguished by a fur cap, surmounted with a flaunting fox's tail, and— When the folks at a country-gathering descried this well-known crest at a distance, whisking about among the squad of hard riders, they always stood by for a squall. Sometimes his crew would be heard dashing along past farmhouses at midnight, with whoop and halloo like a troop of Don Cossacks, and the old dames, startled out of their sleep, would listen for a moment till the hurry-scurry had clattered by, and then exclaimed, Ay, there goes Brom Bones and his gang. The neighbors looked upon him with a mixture of awe, admiration, and goodwill, and when any madcap prank or rustic brawl occurred in the vicinity, they always shook their heads, and warranted Brom Bones was at the bottom of it. This Rantipole hero had for some time singled out the blooming Katrina for the object of his uncouth gallantries, and though his amorous toyings were something like the gentle caresses and endearments of a bear, yet it was whispered that she did not altogether discourage his hopes. Certain it is his advances were signals for rival candidates to retire, who felt no inclination to cross a lion in his amours, insomuch that when his horse was seen tied to Van Tassel's paling on a Sunday night, a sure sign that his master was courting, or, as it is termed, sparking within, all other suitors passed by in despair, and carried the war to other quarters.' Such was the formidable rival with whom Ichabod Crane had to contend, and, considering all things, a stouter man than he would have shrunk from the competition, and a wiser man would have despaired. He had, however, a happy mixture of pliability and perseverance in his nature. He was in form and spirit like a supple jack, yielding but tough. Though he bent, he never broke and though he bowed beneath the slightest pressure, yet, the moment it was away, jerk he was erect, and carried his head as high as ever. To have taken the field openly against his rival would have been madness, for he was not a man to be thwarted in his amours any more than that stormy lover Achilles. Ichabod, therefore, made his advances in a quiet and gently insinuating manner. Under cover of his character of singing master, he made frequent visits at the farmhouse. Not that he had anything to apprehend from the meddlesome interference of parents, which is so often a stumbling block in the path of lovers. Balt Van Tassel was an easy, indulgent soul; he loved his daughter better than his pipe, and, like a reasonable man and an excellent father, let her have her way in everything. His notable little wife, too, had enough to do to attend to her housekeeping and manage her poultry, for, as she sagely observed, ducks and geese are foolish things and must be looked after, but girls can take care of themselves. Thus, while the busy dame bustled about the house or plied her spinning-wheel at the one end of the piazza, Honest Bolt would sit smoking his pipe at the other. "'watching the achievements of a little wooden warrior "'who, armed with a sword in each hand, "'was most valiantly fighting in the wind "'in the pinnacle of the barn. "'In the meantime, Ichabod would carry on his suit "'with the daughter by the side of the spring "'under the great elm, or sauntering along in the twilight, "'that hour so favourable to the lover's eloquence. "'I profess not,' To know how women's hearts are wooed and won, to me they have always been matters of riddle and admiration. Some seem to have but one vulnerable point or door of access, while others have a thousand avenues, and may be captured in a thousand different ways. It is a great triumph of skill to gain the former, but a still greater proof of generalship to maintain possession of the latter. For a man must battle for his fortress at every door and window. He who wins a thousand common hearts is therefore entitled to some renown. But he who keeps undisputed sway over the heart of a coquette is indeed a hero. Certain it is, this was not the case with the redoubtable Brom Bones, And from the moment Ichabod Crane made his advances, the interests of the former evidently declined. His horse was no longer seen tied to the palings on Saturday nights, and a deadly feud gradually arose between him and the preceptor of Sleepy Hollow brahm who had a degree of rough chivalry in his nature would fain have carried matters to open warfare and have settled their pretensions to the lady according to the mode of those most concise and simple reasoners the knights-errant of yore, by single combat But Ichabod was too conscious of the superior might of his adversary to enter the lists against him. He had overheard a boast of Bones that he would double the schoolmaster up and lay him on a shelf of his own schoolhouse, and he was too wary to give him an opportunity. There was something extremely provoking in this obstinately pacific system. It left Brahm no alternative but to draw upon the funds of rustic waggery in his disposition, and to play off boorish practical jokes upon his rival. Ichabod became the object of whimsical persecution to Bones and his gang of rough riders they harried his hitherto peaceful domains smoked out the singing school by stopping up the chimney broke into the schoolhouse at night in spite of its formidable fastenings of withe and window stakes and turned everything topsy turvy so that the poor schoolmaster began to think all the witches in the country held their meetings there. But what was still more annoying, Brahm took all the opportunities of turning him into ridicule in the presence of his mistress, and a scoundrel dog whom he taught to whine in the most ludicrous manner, and introduced as a rival of Ichabod's to instruct her in psalmody. In this way matters went on for some time, without producing any material effect on the relative situations of the contending powers. On a fine autumnal afternoon Ichabod, in pensive mood, sat enthroned on the lofty stool from whence he usually watched all the concerns of his little literary realm. In his hand he swayed a ferule, that scepter of despotic power— the birch of justice reposed on three nails behind the throne, a constant terror to evildoers, while on the desk before him might be seen sundry contraband articles and prohibited weapons detected upon the persons of idle urchins, such as half-munched apples, pop-guns, whirligigs, fly-cages, and whole legions of rampant little paper game-cocks. Apparently there had been some appalling act of justice recently inflicted, for his scholars were all busily intent upon their books, or slyly whispering behind them with what I kept on the master, and a kind of buzzing stillness reigned throughout the schoolroom. It was suddenly interrupted by the appearance of a negro in a toe-cloth jacket and trousers, a round-crowned fragment of a hat like the cap of mercury, and mounted on the back of a ragged, wild, half-broken colt, which he managed with a rope by way of a halter. He came clattering up to the school with an invitation to Ichabod to attend a merry-making or— Quilting frolic, to be held that afternoon at Mynheer Van Tassel's, and, having delivered his message with that air of importance and effort at fine language which a negro is apt to display on petty embassies of the kind, he dashed over the brook, and was seen scampering away up the hollow, full of the importance and hurry of his mission.' All was now bustle and hubbub in the late quiet schoolroom. The scholars were hurried through their lessons without stopping at trifles. Those who were nimble skipped over half with impunity, and those who were tardy had a smart application now and then in the rear to— quicken their speed, or help them over a tall word. Books were flung aside without being put away on the shelves, ink-stands were overturned, benches thrown down, and the whole school was turned loose, an hour before the usual time, bursting forth like a legion of young imps, yelping and racketing about the green in joy at their early emancipation.' The gallant galantikapod now spent at least an extra half hour at his toilets, brushing and furbishing up his best, and indeed only suit of rusty black, and arranging his locks by a bit of broken looking-glass that hung up in the schoolhouse. That he might make his appearance before his mistress in the true style of a cavalier, he borrowed a horse from the farmer with whom he was domicilated, a choleric old Dutchman of the name of Hans Van Ripper, and thus gallantly mounted, issued forth like a knight-errant in quest of adventures. But it is meet I should, in the true spirit of romantic story, give some account of the looks and equipments of my hero and his steed. "'The animal he bestrode was a broken-down plough-horse "'that had outlived almost everything but its viciousness. "'He was gaunt and shagged with a ewe-neck and a head like a hammer. "'His rusty mane and tail were tangled and knotted with burrs. "'One eye had lost its pupil and was glaring and spectral, "'but the other had the gleam of a genuine devil in it. "'Still... He must have had fire and metal in his day, if we may judge from the name he bore of gunpowder. He had, in fact, been a favorite steed of his master's, the choleric Van Ripper, who was a furious rider, and had infused, very probably, some of his own spirit into the animal, for, old and broken down as he looked, there was more of the lurking devil in him than in any young filly in the country.' Ichabod was a suitable figure for such a steed. He rode with short stirrups, which brought his knees nearly up to the pommel of his saddle. His sharp elbows stuck out like grasshoppers. He carried his whip perpendicularly in his hand like a scepter, and— As his horse jogged on, the motion of his arms was not unlike the flapping of a pair of wings. A small wool hat rested at the top of his nose, for so his scanty strip of forehead might be called, and the skirts of his black coat fluttered out almost to the horse's tail. Such was the appearance of Ichabod and his steed as they shambled out of the gate of Hans van Ripper, "'and it was altogether such an apparition as is seldom to be met with in broad daylight. "'It was, as I have said, a fine autumnal day. "'The sky was very clear and serene, and nature wore that rich and golden livery "'which we always associate with the idea of abundance.' The forests had put on their sober brown and yellow, while some trees of the tenderer kind had been nipped by the frosts into brilliant dyes of orange, purple, and scarlet. Streaming files of wild ducks began to make their appearance high in the air. The bark of the squirrel might be heard from the groves of beech and hickory nuts, and the pensive whistle of the quail at intervals from the neighboring stubble-field." The small birds were taking their farewell banquets. In the fullness of their revelry they fluttered, chirping and frolicking from bush to bush and tree to tree, capricious from the very profusion and variety around them. There was the honest cock-robin, the favorite game of stripling sportsmen, with its loud, querulous note and the twittering blackbirds flying in sable clouds, and the golden-winged woodpecker with his crimson crest, his broad black gorget and splendid plumage, and the cedar-bird with its red-tipped wings and yellow-tipped tail in its little Montiero cap of feathers, and the blue-jay, that noisy coxcomb, in his gay light-blue coat and white underclothes, screaming and chattering, nodding and bobbing and bowing, and pretending to be on good terms with every songster of the grove. As Ichabod jogged slowly on his way, his eye, ever open to every symptom of culinary abundance, ranged with delight over the treasures of jolly autumn. On all sides he beheld vast store of apples, some hanging in oppressive opulence on the trees, some gathered into baskets and barrels for the market, others heaped up in rich piles for the cider-press. Farther on he beheld great fields of Indian corn, with its golden ears peeping from their leafy converts, and holding out the promise of cakes and hasty pudding, and the yellow pumpkins lying beneath them, turning up their fair round bellies to the sun, and giving ample prospects of... The most luxurious of pies, and anon he passed the fragrant buckwheat fields, breathing the odor of the beehive, and as he beheld them, soft anticipations stole over his mind of dainty slapjacks, well buttered and garnished with honey or trickle, by the delicate little dimpled hand of Katerina Van Tassel thus feeding his mind with many sweet thoughts and sugared suppositions he journeyed along the sides of a range of hills which look out upon some of the goodliest scenes of the mighty hudson the sun gradually wheeled his broad disk down in the west The wide bosom of the Tapanzee lay motionless and glassy, excepting that here and there a gentle undulation waved and prolonged the blue shadow in the distant mountain. A few amber clouds floated in the sky without a breath of air to move them. The horizon was of a fine golden tint, changing gradually into a pure apple green— and from that into the deep blue of the mid-heaven. A slanting ray lingered on the woody crests of the precipices that overhung some parts of the river, giving greater depth to the dark grey and purple of their rocky sides. A sloop was loitering in the distance, dropping slowly down with the tide, her sail hanging uselessly against the mast, and— AS THE REFLECTION OF THE SKY GLEAMED ALONG THE STILL WATER, IT SEEMED AS IF THE VESSEL WAS SUSPENDED IN AIR. IT WAS TOWARD EVENING THAT ICHABOD ARRIVED AT THE CASTLE OF THE HEER van TASSEL, WHICH HE FOUND THRONGED WITH THE PRIDE AND FLOWER OF THE ADJACENT COUNTRY. Old farmers, a spare leathern faced race, in homespun coats and breeches, blue stockings, huge shoes, and magnificent pewter buckles. Their brisk, withered little dames in close crimped caps, long waisted short gowns, homespun petticoats with scissors and pincushions and gay calico pockets hanging on the outside wuxom lasses almost as antiquated as their mothers, excepting where a straw hat, a fine ribbon, or perhaps a white frock gave symptoms of city innovation. The sons in short, square-skirted coats, with rows of stupendous brass buttons, and their hair generally cued in the fashion of the times, especially if they could procure an eel-skin for the purpose.' "'it being esteemed throughout the country as a potent nourisher and strengthener of the hair. "'Brom Bones, however, was the hero of the scene, having come to the gathering on his favourite steed Daredevil, "'a creature like himself, full of mettle and mischief, and which no one but himself could manage.' He was, in fact, noted for preferring vicious animals, given to all kinds of tricks which kept the rider in a constant risk of his neck, for he held a tractable, well-broken horse as unworthy of a lad of spirit. Fain would I pause to dwell upon the world of charms that burst upon the enraptured gaze of my hero as he entered the state parlor of Van Tassel's mansion, not those of the bevy of buxom lasses with their luxurious display of red and white, but the ample charms of a genuine Dutch country tea-table in the sumptuous time of autumn such heaped-up platters of cakes of various and almost indescribable kinds known only to experienced dutch housewives there was the doughty doughnut the tender ole cook and the crisp and crumbling cruller sweet cakes and short cakes ginger cakes and honey cakes and the whole family of cakes and then there were apple pies and peach-pies, and pumpkin-pies, and, besides, slices of ham and smoked beef, and, moreover, delectable dishes of preserved plums and peaches and pears and quinces, not to mention broiled shad and roasted chickens, together with bowls of milk and cream, all mingled higgledy-piggledy, pretty much as I have enumerated them with the motherly teapot sending up its clouds of vapor from the mist. Heaven bless the mark!' I want breath and time to discuss this banquet as it deserves, and am too eager to get on with my story. Happily, Ichabod Crane was not in so great a hurry as his historian, but did ample justice to every dainty. He was a kind and thankful creature, whose heart dilated in proportion as his skin was filled with good cheer, and whose spirits rose with eating, as some men's do with drink. He would not help, too, rolling his large eyes about him as he ate, and chuckling with the possibility that he might one day be lord of all this scene of almost unimaginable luxury and splendor. Then he thought how soon he'd turn his back upon the old schoolhouse, snap his fingers in the face of Hans van Ripper and every other niggardly patron, and kick any itinerant pedagogue out the doors that he should dare to call him comrade. Old Baltus van Tassel moved about among his guests with a face dilated with content and good humor, round and jolly as the harvest moon. "'His hospitable attentions were brief, but expressive. "'Being confined to a shake of the hand, a slap on the shoulder, "'a loud laugh and a pressing invitation to fall to and help themselves. "'And now the sound of the music from the common room or hall summoned to the dance. "'The musician was an old grey-headed negro, "'who had been the itinerant orchestra of the neighbourhood for more than half a century.' his instrument was old and battered as himself the greater part of the time he scraped on two or three strings accompanying every movement of the bow with a motion of his head bowing almost to the ground and stamping with his foot whenever a fresh couple were to start Ichabod prided himself upon his dancing as much as upon his vocal powers. Not a limb, not a fibre about him was idle, and to have seen his loosely hung frame in full motion and clattering about the room you would have thought St. Vitus himself, that blessed patron of the dance, was figuring before you in person he was the admiration of all the negroes who having gathered of all ages and sizes from the farm and the neighbourhood stood forming a pyramid of shining black faces at every door and window gazing with delight at the scene rolling their white eyeballs and showing grinning rows of ivory from ear to ear how could the flogger of urchins be otherwise than animated and joyous The lady of his heart was his partner in the dance, and smiling graciously in reply to all his amorous oglings, while Brom Bones, sorely smitten with love and jealousy, sat brooding by himself in the corner. When the dance was at an end, Ichabod was attracted to a knot of the Sager folks, who, with old Van Tassel, sat smoking at one end of the piazza, "'gossiping over former times, and drawing out the long stories about the war. "'This neighbourhood, at the time of which I am speaking, was one of those highly favoured places which abound with chronicle and great men.' The British and American line had run near it during the war, and it had, therefore, been the scene of marauding and infested with refugees, cowboys, and all kinds of border chivalry. Just sufficient time had elapsed to enable each storyteller to dress up his tale with a little becoming fiction, and in the indistinctness of his recollection, to make himself the hero of every exploit.' there was the story of dofu martling a large blue-bearded dutchman who had nearly taken a british frigate with an old iron nine-pounder from a mud breastwork only that his gun burst at the sixth discharge and there was an old gentleman who shall be nameless being too rich a mineer to be lightly mentioned who, in the Battle of White Plains, being an excellent master of defence, parried a musket-ball with a small sword, insomuch that he absolutely felt it whiz round the blade and glance off the hilt, in proof of which he was ready at any time to show the sword, with the hilt a little bent. There were several more that had been equally great in that field, not one of whom but was persuaded that he had a considerable hand in bringing the war to— A happy termination. But all these were nothing to the tales of ghosts and apparitions that succeeded. The neighborhood was rich in legendary treasures of the kind. Local tales and superstitions thrive best in these sheltered, long-settled retreats, but are trampled underfoot by the shifting throng that forms the population of most country places." Besides, there is no encouragement for ghosts in most of our villages, for they have scarcely had time to finish their first nap and turn themselves over in their graves before their surviving friends have travelled away from the neighbourhood, so that when they turn out at night to walk their rounds they have no acquaintance left to call upon. This is perhaps the reason why we so seldom hear of ghosts, except in our long-established Dutch communities. The immediate cause, however, of the prevalence of supernatural stories in these parts was doubtless owing to the vicinity of Sleepy Hollow. There was a contagion in the very air that blew from that haunted region. It breathed forth an atmosphere of dreams and fancies infecting all the land. Several of the sleepy hollow people were present at Van Tassel's, and, as usual, were doling out their wild and wonderful legends. Many dismal tales were told about funeral trains and mourning cries and— "'Wailings heard and seen about the great tree where the unfortunate Major André was taken, "'and which stood in the neighbourhood. "'Some mention was also given of the women in white that haunted the dark glen at Raven Rock, "'and was often heard to shriek on winter nights before a storm, having perished there in the snow.' The chief part of the stories, however, turned about the favorite specter of Sleepy Hollow, the headless horseman, who had been heard several times of late patrolling the country, and, it was said, tethered his horse nightly among the graves in the churchyard. The sequestered situation of this church seems always to have made it a favorite haunt of troubled spirits, it stands on a knoll surrounded by locust trees and lofty elms, from among which its decent whitewashed walls shine modestly forth like Christian purity beaming through the shades of retirement. A gentle slope descends from it to a silver sheet of water, bordered by high trees, between which peeps may be caught at the blue hills of the Hudson to look upon its grass-grown yard where the sunbeams seem to sleep so quietly. One would think that there, at least, the dead might rest in peace. On one side of the church extends a wide woody dell, along which raves of a large brook among broken rocks and trunks of fallen-down trees. Over a deep black part of the stream not far from the church was formerly thrown a wooden bridge the road that led to it and the bridge itself were thickly shaded by overhanging trees which cast a gloom about it even in the daytime but occasioned a fearful darkness at night such was one of the favourite haunts of the headless horseman and the place where he was most frequently encountered. The tale was told of Old Brewer, the most heretical disbeliever in ghosts, of how he met the horseman returning from his foray into Sleepy Hollow, and was obliged to get up behind him, and how they galloped over bush and brake over hill and swamp until they reached the bridge." when the horseman suddenly turned into a skeleton threw old broer into the brook and sprang away over the tree-tops with a clap of thunder this story was immediately matched by a thrice marvellous adventure of brom bones who made light of the galloping hessian as an errant jockey He affirmed that on returning one night from the neighboring village of Sing-Sing he had been overtaken by this midnight trooper, that he had offered to race him for a bowl of punch, and should have won it too, for Daredevil beat that goblin horse all hollow. But just as they came to the church bridge, the Hessian bolted and vanished in a flash of fire. All these tales told in that drowsy undertone with which men talk in the dark— The countenances of the listeners only now and then receiving a casual gleam from the glare of a pipe sank deep in the mind of Ichabod. He repaid them in kind with large extracts from his invaluable author Cotton Mather and added many marvelous events that had taken place in his native state of Connecticut and fearful sights which he had seen in his nightly walks about Sleepy Hollow. The rebel now gradually broke up. The old farmers gathered together their families in their wagons, and were heard for some time rattling along the hollow roads and over the distant hills. Some of the damsels mounted on pillions behind their favorite swains, and their light-hearted laughter, mingling with the clatter of hooves, echoed through the dark, silent woodlands, sounding fainter and fainter, until they gradually died away, and the late scene of noise and frolic was all silent and deserted. Ichabod only lingered behind, according to the custom of country lovers, to have a -a tete-a-tete with the heiress, fully convinced that he was now on the high road to success. What passed at this interview I will not pretend to say, for, in fact, I do not know— "'Something, however, I fear me, must have gone wrong, "'for he certainly sallied forth, after no very great interval, "'with an air quite desolate and chapfallen. "'Oh, these women! These women! "'Could that girl have been playing off any of her coquettish tricks? "'Was her encouragement of the poor pedagogue all a mere sham "'to secure her conquest of his rival? "'Heaven only knows, not I.' let it suffice to say that Ichabod stole forth with the air of one who has been sacking a hen-roost, rather than a fair lady's heart. Without looking to either left or right to notice the scene of rural wealth on which he had so often gloated, he went straight to the stable, and with several hearty cuffs and kicks roused his steed most uncourteously from the comfortable quarters in which he was soundly sleeping, "'dreaming of mountains of corn and oats "'and whole valleys of timothy and clover. "'It was the very witching time of night "'that Ichabod, heavy-hearted and crestfallen, "'pursued his travels homewards "'along the sides of the lofty hills "'which rise above Tarrytown, "'and which he had traversed so cheerily in the afternoon.' THE HOUR WAS AS DISMAL AS HIMSELF. FAR BELOW THE TAPANZEE SPREAD ITS DUSKY AND INDISTINCT WASTE OF WATERS, WITH HERE AND THERE THE TALL MAST OF A sloop, RIDING QUIETLY AT ANCHOR UNDER THE LAND. IN THE DEAD HUSH OF MIDNIGHT, HE COULD EVEN HEAR THE BARKING OF THE WATCHDOG FROM THE OPPOSITE SHORE OF THE HUDSON but it was so vague and faint as to only give an idea of his distance from the faithful companion of man. Now and then, too, the long, drawn-out crowing of a cock accidentally awakened would sound far, far off, from some farmhouse away from the hills but it was like a dreaming sound in his ear. No sounds of life occurred near him, but occasionally the melancholy chirp of a cricket, or perhaps the guttural twang of a bullfrog in its neighboring marsh, as if sleeping uncomfortably and turning suddenly in his bed. All the stories of ghosts and goblins that he had heard in the afternoon now came crowding upon his recollection. The night grew darker and darker. The stars seemed to sink deeper in the sky and driving clouds occasionally hid them from his sight. He had never felt so lonely and dismal. He was, moreover, approaching the very place where many of the scenes of the ghost stories had been laid. In the center of the road stood an enormous tulip-tree, which towered like a giant above all the other trees of the neighborhood and formed a kind of landmark. Its limbs were gnarled and fantastic, large enough to form trunks for ordinary trees, twisting down almost to the earth and rising again into the air. It was connected with the tragical story of the unfortunate André who had been taken prisoner hard by, and was universally known by the name of Major André's Tree. The common people regarded it with a mixture of respect and superstition, partly out of sympathy for the fate of its ill-starred namesake, and partly from the tales of strange sights and doleful lamentations told concerning it. As Ichabod approached this fearful tree, he began to whistle. He thought his whistle was answered, but it was but a blast sweeping sharply through the dry branches. As he approached a little nearer, he thought he saw something white hanging in the midst of the trees. He paused and ceased whistling, but on looking more narrowly, he perceived that it was a place where— The tree had been scathed by lightning, and the white wood laid bare. Suddenly he heard a groan, his teeth chattered, his knees smote against the saddle. It was but the rubbing of one huge bough upon another, as they were swayed about by the breeze. He passed the tree in safety, but new perils lay before him about a hundred yards from the tree a small brook crossed the road and ran into a marshy and thickly wooded glen known by the name of wiley's swamp a few rough logs laid side by side served for a bridge over this stream on that side of the road where the brook entered the wood a group of oaks and chestnuts matted thick with wild grapevines threw a cavernous gloom over it To pass this bridge was the severest trial. It was at this identical spot that the unfortunate André was captured, and under the covert of these chestnuts and vines were the sturdy yeoman concealed who surprised him. This has ever been considered a haunted stream, and fearful are the feelings of the schoolboy who has to pass it alone after dark. As he approached the stream his heart began to thump. He summoned up, however, all his resolution, gave his horse half a score of kicks in the ribs, and attempted to dash briskly across the bridge. But instead of starting forward the perverse old animal made a lateral movement, and ran broadside against the fence. Ichabod, whose fears increased with the delay, jerked the reins on the other side and kicked lustily with the contrary foot. It was all in vain. His steed started, it is true, but it was only to plunge to the opposite side of the road into a new thicket of brambles and alder bushes. The schoolmaster now bestowed both whip and heel upon the quivering ribs of old gunpowder, who dashed forward snuffling and snorting, but came to a stand just by the bridge with a suddenness that had nearly sent his rider sprawling over his head. Just at this moment a plashy tramp by the side of the bridge caught the sensitive ear of Ichabod. In the dark shadow of the grove, on the margin of the brook, he beheld something huge, misshapen and towering. It stirred not, but seemed gathered up by the gloom like some gigantic monster ready to spring upon the traveller. The hair of the affrighted pedagogue rose upon his head with terror. What was to be done to turn and fly was now too late, and besides what chance was there of escaping a ghost or a goblin, if such it was, which could ride upon the wings of the wind? Summoning up therefore, a show of courage, he demanded in stammering accents, "'Who, who are you?' He received no reply. He repeated his demand in a still more agitated voice. Still there was no answer. Once more he cudgelled the sides of the inflexible gunpowder, and, shutting his eyes, broke forth with involuntary fervor into a psalm-tune. Just then the shadowy object of alarm put itself in motion, with a scramble and a bound, stood at once in the middle of the road. Though the night was dark and dismal, yet the form of the unknown might now in some degree be ascertained. He appeared to be a horseman— of large dimensions and mounted on a black horse of powerful frame he made no offer of molestation or sociability but came aloof on one side of the road jogging along on the blind side of old gunpowder who had now got over his fright and waywardness Ichabod, who had no relish for this strange midnight companion, and bethought himself of the adventure of Brom Bones with the galloping Hessian, now quickened his steed in hopes of leaving him behind. The stranger, however, quickened his horse to an equal pace. Ichabod pulled up, fell into a walk, thinking to lag behind, but the other did the same. His heart began to sink within him. He endeavored to resume his psalm-tune, but... His parched tongue clove to the roof of his mouth, and he could not utter a stave. There was something in the moody and dogged silence of this pretentious companion that was mysterious and appalling. It was soon fearfully accounted for, on mounting a rising ground which brought the figure of his fellow-traveller in relief against the sky, gigantic in height and muffled in a cloak. Ichabod was horror-struck on perceiving that— He was headless, but his horror was still more increased on observing that the head which should have rested on his shoulders was carried before him on the pommel of his saddle. His terror rose to desperation. He rained a shower of kicks and blows upon gunpowder, hoping by sudden movement to give his companion the slip but the spectre started full jump with him. Away then they dashed through the thick and thin, stones flying, sparks flashing at every bound. Ichabod's flimsy garments fluttered in the air as he stretched his long, lank body away over his horse's head in the eagerness of his flight. They had now reached the road which turns off to Sleepy Hollow, but Gunpowder, who seemed possessed with a demon instead of keeping up it, "'made an opposite turn, and plunged headlong downhill to the left. "'This road leads through a sandy hollow shaded by trees "'for about a quarter of a mile where it crosses "'the famous bridge of the Goblin Story, "'and just beyond swells the green knoll "'on which stands the whitewashed church.' As yet the panic of the steed had given his unskillful rider an apparent advantage in the chase, but just as he had got half-way through the hollow, the girths of the saddle gave way, and he felt it slipping under him. He seized it by the pommel, and endeavoured to hold it firm, but in vain, and he had just time to save himself by clasping old gunpowder round the neck, when the saddle fell to the earth, and he heard it trampled underfoot by his pursuer. For a moment the terror of Hans van Ripper's wrath passed across his mind, for it was his Sunday saddle, but— this was no time for petty fears. The goblin was hard on his haunches, and unskilful rider that he was, he had much ado to maintain his seat, sometimes slipping on one side, and sometimes on another, and sometimes jolted on the high ridge of his horse's backbone with a violence that he verily feared would cleave him asunder. An opening in the trees now cheered him with the hopes that the church bridge was at hand. The wavering reflection of a silver star in the bosom of the brook told him he was not mistaken. He saw the walls of the church dimly glaring under the trees beyond. He recollected the place where Brambone's ghostly competitor has disappeared. "'If I can but reach that bridge,' thought Ichabod, "'I am safe!' Just then he heard the black steed panting and blowing close behind him, and even fancied that he felt its hot breath. Another convulsive kick in the ribs and old gunpowder sprang upon the bridge. He thundered over the resounding planks, he gained the opposite side, and now Ichabod cast a look behind to see if his pursuer should vanish, according to rule, in a flash of fire and brimstone. Just then... He saw the goblin rising in his stirrups, and in the very act of hurling his head at him. Ichabod endeavoured to dodge the horrible missile, but too late. It encountered his cranium with a tremendous crash. He was tumbled headlong into the dust and gunpowder, the black steed, and the goblin rider all passed by like a whirlwind. The next morning the old horse was found without his saddle, and with the bridle under his feet, soberly cropping the grass at his master's gate. Ichabod did not make his appearance at breakfast. Dinner hour came, but no Ichabod. The boys assembled at the schoolhouse, and strolled idly about the banks of the brook, but no schoolmaster. "'Hans von Ripper began to feel some uneasiness about the fate of poor Ichabod and his saddle. "'An inquiry was set afoot, and after diligent investigation they came upon his traces. "'In one part of the road leading to the church he found the saddle trampled in the dirt. "'The tracks of horses' hooves deeply dented the road, "'and evidently at furious speed were traced to the bridge.' Beyond which, on the bank of a broad part of the brook, where the water ran deep and black, was found the hat of the unfortunate Ichabod, and close beside it, a shattered pumpkin. The brook was searched, but the body of the schoolmaster was not to be discovered. Hans von Ripper, as executor of his estate, examined the bundle which contained all his worldly effects; they consisted of two shirts and a half, two socks for the neck, a pair of two worsted stockings, an old pair of corduroy small clothes, a rusty razor, a book of psalm tunes full of dog ears, and a broken pitch pipe. As to the books and furniture of the schoolhouse, they belonged to the community excepting Cotton Mather's history of witchcraft, a New England almanac, and a book of dreams and fortune-telling, in which last was a sheet of foolscap, much scribbled and blotted in several fruitless attempts to make a copy of verses in honour of the heiress of Van Tassel. These magic-books and the poetic scrawl were forthwith consigned to the flames by Hans von Ripper who from that time forward determined to send his children no more to school, observing that he never knew any good came of that same reading and writing. Whatever money the schoolmaster possessed, and he had received his quarter's pay but a day or two before, he must have had about his person at the time of his disappearance. The mysterious event caused much speculation at the church on the following Sunday. Knots of gazers and gossips were collected in the churchyard, at the bridge, and at the spot where the hat and pumpkin had been found. The stories of broar, of bones, and of a whole budget of others were called to mind, and when they had diligently considered them all and compared them with the symptoms of the present case, they shook their heads and came to the conclusion that Ichabod had been carried off by the galloping Hessian. As he was a bachelor, and in nobody's debt, nobody troubled his head any more about him, and the school was removed to a different quarter of the hollow, and another pedagogue reigned in his stead. It is true an old farmer, who had been down to New York on a visit several years earlier, and from whom this account of the ghostly adventure was received, brought home the intelligence that Ichabod Crane was still alive— and that had left the neighbourhood partly through fear of the goblin and Hans van Ripper, and partly in mortification at having been suddenly dismissed by the heiress, that he had changed his quarters to a distant part of the country, and kept school and studied law at the same time, had been admitted to the bar, turned politician, electioneered, written for the newspapers, and finally had been made a justice of the ten-pound court.' "'Brom Bones, too, who shortly after his rival's disappearance "'conducted the blooming Katrina in triumph to the altar, "'was observed to look exceedingly knowing "'whenever the story of Ichabod was related, "'and always burst into a hearty laugh "'at the mention of the pumpkin, "'which led some to suspect that he knew more "'about the matter than he chose to tell. "'The old country wives, however,' who were the best judges of these matters, maintain to this day that Ichabod was spirited away by supernatural means, and it is a favourite story often told about the neighbourhood round the winter evening fire. The bridge became more than ever an object of superstitious awe, and that may be the reason why the road has been altered of late years, so as to approach the church by the border of the mill pond, the schoolhouse, being deserted, soon fell to decay and was reported to be haunted by the ghost of the unfortunate pedagogue and the ploughboy loitering homeward of a still summer evening, has often fancied his voice at a distance, chanting a melancholy psalm tune among the tranquil solitudes of Sleepy Hollow.
2: Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jim. Hello, my name is John Feaster.
0: And we're going to talk about The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, in 1820, I want to say, uh, short story, yeah, by Washington Irving. And um, did you guys, uh, in your readings, find out where he got the idea for
2: this story? Uh, well... The concept of a headless horseman has been around for a long time. Uh, goodness gracious, it's uh is bits and pieces in in uh, in Celtic folklore. Let's let, let's be honest. Sir Gawain of the Green Knight mm-hmm. conjures up images of uh, of the uh, of the headless horseman. I think it's also Germanic, although I was I was unable to find any specific stories uh connect, connected to it um except for something that might might involve the wild hunt. Mm-hmm. But I'm afraid
3: Jim, t- you wrote, you wrote a column recently on this exact topic. Well, this is it it's, um uh, <clears throat> scholars know that while he was actually working was on his tour um as Mr. Jeffrey Crayon. Um, <laughs> uh he did read a book um called uh, Popular Tales of the Germans which was an English translation of a large, an uh, uh, edited damage of a large one called Wolfsmaßen der Deutschen, which is uh, folk tales of uh, the Germans by a guy called uh, Klaus uh, Muas. Uh, I'm not sure how you do the umlaut on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Carl no, Carl Muas. And he did he, did, he did actually kind of like the brothers Grimm he collected together legends and folk tales and um preserved them and put them in books. And apparently in popular popular Tales of the German there are actually several stories that feature um spectral horsemen and headless horsemen. And it, uh, according to most things I've read, of course there's one that does include the um racing to a bridge and even that um a shattered pumpkin or in this case a shattered gourd being found um, however I'm not able to locate I found w- volume one of popular Tales of the German archive.org but that doesn't seem to have those stories in it from what I could tell but they do have the stories written out as like very long kind of sagas rather than just little usual short folk tales and and so it's kind of hmm I'm, try- I'm trying to locate the source to that because I'd be interested to see <laughs> how far his uh, inspiration came but I know also while he was in England he was very very influenced by uh, Sir Walter Scott who was a <laughs> really big heavyweight sort of you know in- of English romanticism at the time and you know, Walter Scott um, you know, he wrote Ivanhoe he drew on English and Scottish legends and lore and he worked them into his huge novels he wrote um, you know um, uh, Scott had the nickname the Wizard of the North uh, for his uh his mastery of this stuff. And um i I'm fairly sure kind of at least through Scott that uh Irving, you know, was inspired to look at folk tales and legends and you know, work them into a story. And also got all the kind of local colour and history as well that you get in Sleepy Hollow. I think, you know, Scott you can't underestimate his influence on the writing. Mm-hmm. Uh but also probably this um the long uh, story told in verse, uh, "Tam o' by Robert Burns, uh, and that's uh, a, a, a spooky but also a humorous tale of, uh, of an, uh, an unlikely hero, a bit of a, a, bit of a misfit who, uh, you know, tarries too late and ends up being chased by uh, witches and demons. And uh, you know, it's only crossing a bridge and crossing ring water that saves him. And I'm sure Tam O'Shanter was a, another big influence on uh, on this. I mean, as for you said, the headless horseman. I mean, headless ghosts are. I mean, after the typical sheeted ghoul, a ghost with its head under its arm is you know the popular sort of cartoon pop culture image of a ghost. So, it's, um, I mean, you know, there's so many English ghosts uh, anywhere that had beheadings, you got headless. <laughs> you got headless ghosts. Uh, so
2: all um, of King Henry's I, wives.
3: Well, this is Anne Boleyn. She walks a bridge at the Tower of London carrying her head before her. Uh, On Christmas Eve, she pulls up to her old home at Hever Castle in a coach pulled by headless horses uh, and walks around carrying her own head around the house only to disappear at dawn. So in the the story, uh, he throws a
0: pumpkin, the headless horseman, throws a pumpkin at Ichabod Crane and uh, in almost every depiction, they make the pumpkin a, a jack-o'-lantern. But as far as I can tell, jack-o'-lanterns were subsequent to the story's publication. Not that much subsequent, so it's possible that it it was supposed to be that. But is this a Halloween story or a Thanksgiving story? Uh, I think it's a Halloween story. Doesn't say um, Halloween anywhere in it, but I know in the Disney version they explicitly state that it's a harvest fest. Uh, they say this harvest mm-hmm. festival was Halloween, and it makes sense that it would be Halloween.
3: Well, so the tradition of say carving pumpkins um, in autumn does sort of predate the kind of organised Halloween festivals um, that were in America. Although it's in England, you know, you can trace them. They go way, way, way back. Um, In you know, it's it's only towards kind of the end of the 19th century that these sort of, often local traditions get consolidated. But certainly, um, uh, come autumn, people were making pumpkin lanterns. I think quite quite as early as this tale was written, if I remember. Uh, uh, my research is rightly. I do have a date for the first mention of a carved jack-o'-lantern in, in a, on American soil um, <laughs> uh, 1849, in 1849,
0: I think, or thereabouts. Um, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. 1834, it's, a, it's first recorded. Yes. 1834. Okay. Yeah. Um, so th- today is not uh, Thanksgiving, but tomorrow is uh, in Canada. In uh, the U.S., it's uh, a month later. And uh, it follows Halloween in Canada. precedes Halloween, um, so pumpkins up here are you know already out for for Thanksgiving and and Halloween, and then they they continue on into that tradition. But uh, in in researching about all of this, I found that um, the word coconut um, is actually uh, from head and soul. When they first found coconuts, they named it after the the uh, the sort of the the shape and tradition of a, a ghost's head or a headless ghost. I thought that was really interesting because <laughs> taking it into the South Pacific, we did a story uh, not very long ago uh, called uh, "The Red One," in which breadfruit breadfruit plays a um, a big role in the symbology, and breadfruit is even more like a human head than than coconut is. But I I
3: just like why is the ghost? <laughs>
0: Throwing the butt. I mean, if it is a ghost, it's not. Really
3: a well, ghost. the thing is, what the actual text says that the rider throws his head at him. Right. And It's in the morning it's discovered this Ichabod's crane and a shattered pumpkin. Now, obviously, over the years, although it's not stated in Irving, people who've adapted or illustrated this have thought, well, um, we've gone with the theory that, you know, the headless horseman is a. Uh, a put on. It's Brom Bones, yes, and it's you know Ichabod sees he's carrying his head on the pommel of his saddle, and mm-hmm. they assume well to make a pumpkin look like a head, he must have carved it like a jack o' lantern. Right, right. That, that's kind of it's one of those metatextual things of kind of although it's kind of it's easy to think oh well it's a, it's a ghost stories, but it's, it's American, it's popular Halloween and there's just been grabbed the yackle has been grafted on but it kind of is there in the text It just never made quite explicit mm-hmm. and there's, a, there's actually a lot of things in this text that never quite totally explicit. it never makes i think this is incredibly well written and i think even
0: washington irving must have thought he it was his best thing because uh, he he ended up getting buried in sleepy hollow um he he in the story he explicitly says you know this is where i went as a child i mean it's not really him it's the narrator but it says i shot my squirrels in this area but apparently washington irving as a youth did uh visit this area and and really enjoyed it and when he died he he made sure that they would consign his bones to the the sleepy hollow graveyard so i uh, uh, What I'm thinking, really
2: quickly, just as I a jump in here, because I I was interested in in, in what um, what Mister Moon had said, Uh, knowing that this is that this is uh, based on Germanic folklore, that finally adds a little adds a little bit to. I've always known that the headless horseman was a Hessian artilleryman. He's Mm -hmm. and I always thought was that just a bit of color. Just supposed to. Oh, he wasn't just uh, another soldier. He was this specific type of soldier from this specific area, which would be, well, what would be in modern modern parlance, Germany. So mm-hmm. i i never I never connected that before because I never really knew of its Germanic, if it's German descent, if you will. I well, just want to th- say th- th- thank th- you.
0: I think there's even more stuff going on there, like the the people in this valley. You know, they the whole area is sleepy, right? It's it's sort of for and uh, his other story, Rip Van Winkle, mm-hmm. is also, you know, it's about sleep.
2: <laughs> oh, well it's but uh, sleep but it's 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 all it's all involves oh, for pity's sakes. It all involves the Dutch of New York who exactly. might possibly be thought of in a strange way as like the irish of the british empire which is to say oh yes those people over there those people are different uh, those people are interesting we can put these words in those people's mouths because those people are unusual and colorful and yet people are aware of them
0: well irving seems to you know he's dropped his his connecticut yankee into uh into this this sleepy setting and what happens to him is he's driven out right and he goes and and lives the ra- – at the end of the story, we find out, oh, well, maybe he's not dead, carried off to another world. He's actually a justice of the peace now and, uh, you know, married to uh, – in one of the adaptations, married to a, a widow and blah, blah, blah. Um, he's kicked out of this sleepy community, driven out of this sleepy community. Um, in, in Rip Van Winkle, uh, what's so interesting is that the, the character sleeps through the American Revolution, right? Mm-hmm. So he goes from living under the English to living under the Americans, and the 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 difference in tone is is very much also here, the difference between you know bustling New York uh, city and uh, Terrytown or even Sleepy Hollow, that is sort of the backwoods where the traditions are are left behind. It, it reminds me a lot of what we see in uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Um, I think Nathaniel Hawthorne. There's a deep connection there, but it also, I mean, barring the uh, the jokey atmosphere, which I uh, apparently Lovecraft was not a big fan of. Um, yeah. It it totally reminds me of sort of the loving description of the countryside. Discus uh, makes me think of the way Lovecraft writes about you know architecture. It's almost um, uh, a romance of of the landscape. And the food and the birds and it's it's just I think he I think Irving must have loved this story. I really love it. I've heard it like six times this week. I read it twice. I'm shocked by how good it is.
2: As far as the jokey nature of Washington Irving's writing, he he can take even even a really good gruesome subject and make it sometimes. A little too amusing. Um, I think I mentioned to you one of my one of my favorite stories by Washington Irving, uh, "Guests from Gibbet Island,"
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, that involves a, a fellow who's who's a retired pirate who's still who's still a, who's living in a, in the tavern which he and his old piratical friends used to use as a base of some sort, and he's just across the just across the water is this island. Gibbet Island and hanging there still are the tattered bodies of his old shipmates. And he was never convicted for the crimes that they died for, and one night he raises a he raises a glass in, in the presence of his um of his uh black slave Pluto, and he tells tells them that he would give any any anything to drink with those men again. And that night their corpses shamble down and <laughs> But, but you, you, it's, it's a thing you, you hear of in, in a sort, it, 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 It's not Other oh, corpses come through, the, come through the door And hey here we are We're going to drag you off to wherever the heck But rather you hear peep what, About what happens after the fact Kind of uh, how you don't see The real finishing action Of Headless Horseman You just hear about what happened And you're supposed to infer what you want but it, mm-hmm. it's a it's a genuinely good story, I think. A nice, creepy subject, but there's a little bit too much nod, and wink, and giggle in between, and sometimes it just ruins things. But that well, was just a style of the time.
0: Yeah. It, it, what's interesting is that this is not really a horror story as much as it is. I think it's an out oh, no. comedy.
2: Mm, very much so. But it's but it's one with a good sense of mood that I like.
0: Oh, a great sense of mood. Uh, uh, one of the one of the amazing things to me is you just start looking at how many times birds are mentioned i mean the guy's name is crane, but every bird gets a a loving description usually it's it's almost like we're riding in Ichabod crane's mind because or very near it because everything's about food and <laughs> he sees all the the uh Farm animals, and he starts, you know, putting pudding in their bellies, <laughs> getting ready to eat them. It's not so much that the 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 only daughter of ventassel is is beautiful, as is, is that she has a very, very um, rich farm, a full larder. I
2: thought of it as a little a little bit as a, a sort of a, a low yield version of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. If you've ever read. Read that. I love that book, but the uh, our our main character that we're following along. I can always forget his name when I'm not actually reading the book, and the main character we're following along. He encounters astonishingly, uh, astonishing sea creatures that you've never encountered before. This from this and that from that and this. And while he always speaks of them fast, I'm so amazed that there's these fish here and these squid here. He always ends up with a description of how delicious they were to eat, (laughs) which occasionally punctures the book like, oh, Oh, okay. Oh the astonishing shark of such with such and this, and it was this long and this this, and uh, and uh, it it made an excellent ragout when mid, when mixed <laughs> with this. And part of me thought, huh, hm, I, I I have I have a feeling that uh, I have a feeling that Jules Verne was a real fan of fish. And then <laughs> in a strange way, one one of his piggybacked images while he's going through this book was, oh, would not it be great to eat something that's never seen the light?
0: He's very very. Uh, you know, good at character, J- Jules Verne. I think uh, we're seeing that here as well. This is this is exquisitely painted portrait of a of a, a landscape and a person. I mean, his every movement is is. There was um, one movie version I didn't finish watching because it was just so such a bad muddled mm. um, copy. Uh, but it was uh, Jeff Goldblum playing. Ichabod Crane, and I thought that that was really good casting. You know, the the um, shovel-footed, large-beaked, gangly figure is exactly what's described in this story. And um, the prodigious, um, uh, there's a really great line about him having the uh, dilating abilities of an anaconda. (laughs) 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 He's really able to put away food. And um, in fact, the whole landscape uh, when when he's walking home from the, or he's walking home from uh, some sort of event, um, and he's look or maybe he's walking to an event, and he's looking at the landscape, and he's, he's the trees are just laden overflowing with fruit, and the birds are happy doing their thing. There's a chi- there's a chicken uh, a rooster who, who's scratching up some some uh, food for his hens. His wives, it says. That reminded me again of um, Nathaniel Hawthorne and uh, the House of the Seven Gables with the hands that look like the characters.
2: Chanticleer.
0: Chanticleer, right. Hmm. Um, I, I really love this story, and I hadn't read it before. What, what, what do you
3: guys think? Um, i really know with this uh there are. I do have a, a few kind of issues with it, um, or other issues around it. Uh, there's what. There's one thing is it kind of. It always kind of. It doesn't irk me that essentially we have the world's first Scooby Doo ending. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> um Sorry, it's kind of like, it's like oh, there wasn't a ghost. It's just that bloody big lout asking about. Oh, that's disappointing. Um, but at the same time, what what kind of the bit that actually irks me is the fact that Brom Bones gets away with being, frankly, if I may be blunt, a colossal prick. Yeah, he's a bully. <laughs> he's the best <Biff> canner of this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of uh, it's just for me. It's just, it's just like it's a beat missing of where at the end he says, and that's Brom Bones. Well, he was riding his horse and had his head took off by a low-hunging branch. Or so, that's what the county doctor said. And you know what I mean? Just something so he got his comeuppance.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is. It's almost anti-intellectual. That's what's so funny about it is it? Is, I mean, the way Ichabod Crane is described is, you know he's a prodigious prodigious reader and having having read several books all the way through <laughs> he's like
1: <laughs> what?
0: okay yeah i mean he he's relying on uh one book by cotton mather as his end all and be all um and we get the sense that you know he he get, goes back to the city and he gets he gets um on well doing his you know head work
3: the mm. labor of head
0: work. but uh, the the country sort of relaxed country uh, atmosphere. It, it's almost exclusionary. I get the sense that, I mean, the fact that his head is is he's headless fits Brom Bones, but it's also not an indictment of Brom Bones, right? He's 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 a bully and he gets away with it, um, but it's more like a practical joke, right? It's not like it's holy malice.
3: There is that. I mean, I think it's very telling, though. It's kind of what's often sort of missed is from many adaptations is the um, the, the, po- the the postscript written in the hand of Mr. Knickerbocker. Mm-hmm. Where, where, where it's almost everything like of going, yeah, I know. I'm not sure what a point I'm supposed to make here. Is it uh, um, if you're greedy, you're bad? Is it uh, yeah. anti-intellectual? Is it is it good to be a roister doister and a complete twat and, <laughs> and drag about and you get the girl? I mean, it's, uh, I'm not sure what the moral is. Maybe there isn't one. Maybe it's just a well, tall it tale. D- yeah, there we go.
2: It doesn't necessarily have to have a moral. I was talking to no, a friend a couple, just, just just a couple of days ago about about um, about Edgar Allan Poe and talking about my favorite stories and least favorite stories of his and. I was talking about one of, one of the things I love in, in a weird way. It's not something I want to see every time. One of the things I love in a weird way about um, about the Cask of Montiato is that at the end of the story, you realize nobody stepped in and stopped this. He wasn't <laughs> arrested.
3: He's mm.
2: he's, tel- he's telling... Uh, well, we were talking about our image of the story, if we were going to set the story. And I had, we had this, this final mm. image of this man. He's just confessing the story to no one. He killed the guy and now he's sitting here in this room in front of this fireplace somewhere down underneath him are the bones of a man who died of starvation and the dark for insulting him. And we have this it, we have we, and he was saying, "Well, I see him as he's telling the story to his to his to a priest, he's that was me,
0: by the way. You're, oh, you're, oh right! That,
2: right, right sorry. sorry. <laughs> no, me. this has been a crazy. This has been a crazy week. This has been a crazy week. Yeah, uh, my, my God, I'm up to eighty five hours right now. Okay. Anyway, anyway,
0: I, I was saying that it. I think it's it's a deathbed confession.
2: And I was saying I had this image of he's t- telling this not to a person, but on the walls are perhaps family portraits, or perhaps before him, a mirror. He's confessing, but only to the person he respects, and that's him. And it's to him that he raises the glass and says, pace requiesca. It's to him that he's, con- that he's confessing, because he is, as he is in the story, the law unto himself. When I look mm-hmm. at this story, I'm not so much disappointed that the bad guy wins, but it is very much a back-to-the-future if Biff Tanner had won, it's he. Brom Bones is definitely just a a two-fisted hunk without much going on between his ears. Although, oh, well, he like manages. It said, if, I, 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 if I were to were to adapt this, I really, I really do think that a great thing would be to find. Yes, they find they, they find the, uh, the the shattered gourd, but maybe they also find Brom Bones', uh Brom Bones' headless body. J- not not and you and you're left wondering what the heck is that is that about? Perhaps there was a real headless horseman that came that that came after him. Perhaps a postscript to this might be Brom Bones riding riding away from all, from all of this. He's chased chased off uh, Ichabod, and he's congratulating himself. And let's be honest, it's a, it's actually a good trick. And then he thinks he sees it's somebody. Right, he, he thinks he sees somebody pulling the same thing riding behind him, and he perhaps. Turns turns and and says says something like, "Oh, so you finally caught on, Ichabod." Until he realizes under the fu- under the full light, as he approaches, that it is a genuinely headless man. And did
0: you guys see the nineteen ninety nine movie with Johnny Depp? Uh, yeah. I-, I
2: liked I liked the basic premise. It was kind of like a time time period specific uh, episode of Night Stalker, if you will.
3: Uh, here's here's Carl,
2: here's Rip Van Kolchak trying trying to trying to solve the mystery, but there was a. Ultimately speaking, I felt it was too heavy with, uh, Wiccan influences. To oh, I see. This is this is yeah. You you uh, these are your beliefs. I understand you're putting them in the mo- in this movie. You're inserting them into somebody else's subject matter. Okay, fine. I guess. But when...
0: They turned it into a detective story mm, instead of sl- what it actually is.
2: When, I, I don't think it could oh, her be... Belly was cut, his, her belly was cut open. And the embryo was in the pregnant woman was beheaded. Part of me just giggled at that, and I thought, okay, that's just silly. Yeah. I, I, tr- I I couldn't take it as seriously as I wanted. What I did love about that was the imagery of uh, the
0: imagery Sleeping Hollow.
2: It was amazing.
0: Yeah. And and there's a distinct change between the the haunted Sleepy Hollow at the beginning of the movie and the the end is much more bright and you know the colors are more <laughs> I'm going to say less more natural but I, I think it's just um, you know later in the season but yeah I th- I mean he completely abandons the the story Ichabod Crane becomes a detective he's got his own backstory. Um, the 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 casting is wonderful Christopher Lee is in it Mm -hmm. you know there's all sorts of great great actors going on in the thing the music's fine you know all that stuff but it's totally different from the original story and I don't think uh, it's adapted properly because because of the way it's 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 so much about the way it's told in, in the text.
3: Well, for me, I, I think kind of what they should have done is, I know it's a short story, you want to make a movie, you've got to add bits. But they, they, should, they should have done the story straight in the first uh, 15, 20 minutes. Then had Johnny Depp's character come to investigate the disappearance of Ichabod Crane. That, mm-hmm. that would have worked better for me, you know. Interesting. A- yeah,
0: that's an interesting take on it. But you know, they had like four murders or something before he shows up, so or five or whatever it is. Um, uh, <laughs> I tweeted a couple of Marvel adaptations of it, uh, and, uh, and that got me to thinking about the Ghost Rider. Um, so I, I watched the first Ghost Rider movie. You know, I read oh. the, the comic books. Well, actually, you know, the first Ghost Rider movie is a masterpiece compared to the second one. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> a piece of junk that is. I could barely get into ten minutes of it before I started wanting to kill myself. What's so funny is they rebooted the... <laughs> <laughs> the first movie and the second movie, they changed. You know, they changed the name of the. He made a deal with the devil in the first movie and the second movie. No, it's not the devil. It was, it was some other guy, <laughs> and they changed the actor who played the devil. And it was like, what? What's this? Is just garbage. So, um, but I think it's interesting because Ghost Rider is. I mean, he's got a head, but uh, in the, in the story proper, they call him a goblin, which I thought was a really interesting. Uh, Because it it feels like it's so long ago, 1820, they haven't quite, you know, done the Tolkien thing where he's distinguishing between goblins and orcs. Um, You know, everything is is crystallizing or is crystallized now. But back then, it was all sort of muddled, I
3: guess. Well, it's kind of, I mean, it's one of the things that Tolkien did. He kind of took mythical creatures and seeded the idea that they are these different races. I mean, there are people kind of doing it a bit before, but kind of at the time that Irving was writing, you know, ghost and goblin were kind of uh, almost interchangeable terms. They were, you know, things for like, you know, a frightening spirit. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a Scrooge. Um you know, may say to Marley, So you know, you sir, you know, in the famous bit, you're the product of indigestion. He says, I only have to swallow this toothpick and be forever tormented for the rest of my days by a legion of goblins of my own creation. <laughs> uh, you know, that's kind of, and actually, if you go back to kind of, you know, headless horseman in mythology, I mean, in my little article, i uh, I picked out my favorite, which is uh, the Irish uh, Dullahan, which is a spectral headless rider, often seen pulling a cart draped in human skin with skulls <laughs> lit up for lanterns and thigh bones making the spokes of his carriage and wearing a cloak made of human flesh. And um, but, you know, he's kind of he's seen as you're know, not just kind of as he's seen as a ghost, but also as a member of the fairy kingdom. And she's you know there's this blurred line between the two of the of the spirits of the dead and the inhabitants of fairy they're, they're all spirits
2: <laughs> ah also yeah. armed with a whip made from a human corpse's spine
3: that's right you'd whip out the eyes of those who saw him as he passed <laughs> that also reminded
0: me of ghost Rider he's got that chain right? yes and, yeah um it's not quite a human spine, but it's the same sort of idea. And in that, one of the Marvel adaptations of Sleepy Hollow, it's like Return to Sleepy Hollow or something. Um, the 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 Headless Horseman is a skeleton. And is it explicitly stated in the story here that he's a skeleton?
2: No, that was because of, of Marvel. Marvel was sort of caught between a rock and a hard place of that situation a lot of characters who seemed spooky or such at that point in time had to be had to be created along a very specific line you were not allowed to depict something that was supposed to be a dead person that was when you see the comics code symbol symbol in the corner mm-hmm. it's the reason morbius is the living vampire they <laughs> fi- they finally decided you know what to hell with you. And Stanley just began to go, write what you want, and don't worry, we'll fight it in court. And this, they began to, okay, and this is um, Count Dracula, and it's actual Count Dracula. And they would complain about, now this is supposed to be a dead person, and Stanley would say, it's not a maggoty corpse, it's Count freaking Dracula, get over it. And this was at the point in time where Marvel was challenging them constantly, but but there was a period there where you were not supposed to actually depict an actual corpse. So a skeleton was considered a safe medium. But but I actually knew something about this subject.
3: (laughs) Well, they 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 also had a a slight about a wiggle room, that if it came from work of classic literature, which is kind of how they, you know, got the door open with Tube of Dracula. you are saying, ah, Bram Stoker wrote it.
0: (laughs) Well, let me Uh, me read you this line. uh, This is... Interesting. Oh, sorry. Ah, you're okay. going to
3: mention that in the in CP Hollow, where it's, well, one yeah. of the old of the old gaffers at um, Van Tassel's uh, uh, quilting frolic um, tells a tale of being pursued by the horseman. When the horseman when he crosses the bridge, the horseman uh, turns to a skeleton and vanishes.
0: Right. This is the line. It goes. The tale was told from an old brower. A most heretical disbeliever in ghosts. I like I love that joke there. <laughs> how he met the horseman returning from his foray into Sleepy Hollow and was obliged to get up behind him, how he, how they galloped over the brush and brake over the hill and swamp until they reached the bridge when the horseman suddenly turned into a skeleton, threw old Brower into the brook and sprang away over the treetops with a clap of thunder. Mm-hmm. That makes me think of of uh, leading to the wild hunt, right? He's mm-hmm. He's not just riding through the forest; he's riding into the sky. <laughs> It—it's it, like he can't. Like when he crosses, the, it's almost like the rule. You know, the rules of,
3: of vampires. You know, mm-hmm. this hurts them uh, and this doesn't. This
0: do, you know where, do you know? where that from?
3: comes from? Do you know where that comes yeah, from? Tell me. This is superbly. On one hand, it's because um, rivers often marked uh, parish. Or sort of um, you know discrete boundaries of towns, and they what you know folklore is called liminal areas, and mm-hmm. it's the idea that a spirit's haunt a place, and you know that place is defined by the local geography, and hence you know a ghost couldn't leave the parish it was in, and so it couldn't cross running water. However, um, in a marvelously gruesome book written by a mortician I own called *The uh, Vampires' Burial and Death*, um, he has a the, the wonderful um, theory that um, that the the idea, particularly like vampires and uh, and various other ghosts and goblins, can't cross running water, comes the fact of um, uh, uh, bad burials. And what would happen was you'd have, you know, um, uh, because you know it w- it's only fairly recently started burying people six foot deep. Uh, in earlier times, because was winter, you wouldn't bury the dead quite so deeply. But if that if your cemetery or boneyard was you know, prone to flooding, as many of them were, corpses might get washed away, and so the next village down might wake up, boom, up one morning to find uh, there's a, a corpse snagged on the on the village bridge or in the reeds, and people would say, there wouldn't, you know, you remember this is a smaller world. People probably didn't leave their own village ever. Maybe, in the main, it was kind of there's no news. There's no kind of oh well, up there's flooded. It's kind of this rotted corpse clawing at the reeds, caught in the sun. Ah, a vampire can't cross running water. Nice. <laughs> it makes me were
0: thinking about the crossing these bridges and stuff. Made me think that maybe maybe out there in an in the episode I haven't seen there's a Dukes of Hazard uh crossover with
2: <laughs> <laughs> Okay, going to the high high stuff now. Dukes of Hazard. Let me know. <laughs> well, You know <laughs> it's it's got what this happened thing in Hazard County. Well,
0: yeah, right. The sheriff can't leave his county, right? Well, that's so it.
3: Yeah, he crossed the county anytime. line.
0: That's right. They jump over that broken bridge and fly into the sky, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then they get away. You are
2: stretching, <laughs> but I, now I love the idea. I love the idea of you're you're there. You're there at a pitch meeting, and he's explaining, and the Duke boys symbolize the headless horseman, and they're going. Well, that's a great idea, Sheriff Roscoe P. Coltrane. Can't pursue him because he's Ichabod Co- Roscoe P. Ichabod Coltrane. That's a that's his actual name.
0: Well, I think I think they're yeah, he he is sort of like that because the, his boss is is not quite Brom Bones, but he's you know.
2: He's, are we dancing around the concept of the Disney adaptation, or are we event- eventually going to hit? No,
0: I, I, the Bing Crosby uh, voiced. One i I think it's pretty well done.
2: I, I, th- that is almost everything I know about the story. Having read the story, the story bleeds through my brain because when I was a child, my mother bought me, well, okay, I'll, my mother loves horror and such, and she bought me a lot of similar things. and one of the things I had was this was this record version, this LP record version of this story. I have only seen the actual animated story once every time i think of the story i think about that record because mm-hmm. i listened to it i think at least five times a day every day <laughs> for years <laughs> all the windows lock the doors you know I, I i loved the sound of that story i loved the 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 creepy nature there at the end when he when he, when he's riding along and mm. they the they have the you're sitting. You're sitting alone, perhaps in your darkened bedroom, listening to the wind. Uh, uh, you know. and the
0: frogs are saying "Ichabod, Ichabod." Exactly, Ichabod.
2: <laughs> exactly. Oh, goodness gracious! That that I genu- I genuinely enjoyed that re- that record, and I genuinely enjoyed enjoyed the animated version. I mean, it, it's better than Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. You know the, <laughs> the wind in the willows. Hey, they tried, they tried, but it was. I don't think it was the time for that. I think that now might be the time for a serious wind in the willows adaption The problem, of course, is that it's uh, now nobody knows what wind in the willows is. Yeah. Well, I I, I think there's something deep.
0: Uh, I was listening to um, one of the uh, philosophy podcasts, uh, the partially examined life. They were talking about uh, Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And the American ph- uh, philosophers um, are different from like the European and the English philosophers and the Greek philo- philosophers. They've they've got ser- their own sort of thing going on, and there is this divide between the country and the city, and the um, the sort of rough and ready um, cowboy type and the intellectual um, who gets sort of lost uh, in that in that. Um, in the Sleepy Hollow adaptation by Disney, they have Ichabod Crane whenever he isn't eating. He's got his face in a book like, you know, the way we have uh, you walk down the street, you see people holding their their phone, looking into their phone as they walk. Uh, he's just like that, but with a book. <laughs> uh, so he can't even see where he's gone. Right? Um, and whenever he is not holding that book, he's he's um, Eating, and in the it, that comes straight out of the story. After class, right, he would while away his afternoons reading ghost the ghost uh, stories of Cotton Mather or the witch witches tales of Cotton Mather until the evening, and then go to his tenanted uh, home for that week. It's a very um, specific thing. He's playing sort of a weird role in the community that nobody else is playing because he's such an outsider and when he, at the end of the story when they find his 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 scrappy love poems that he's been writing to Katrina um or writing for Katrina uh and his books and stuff they burn all everything right <laughs> and then the and von ripper the or uh, van ripper uh the guy who lent him gunpowder in the first place he says uh and uh, or he he swears never to send his children to school again because obviously it comes to no good
1: <laughs> there's uh,
0: there's a uh, uh, there is an anti-intellectual thing going on but it's also a hypercompetence um a brombones thing going on i think
2: hmm. i've always assumed assumed that the anti-intellectual feeling was um was almost uh if if you will that the the author is thinking of himself in a way as Ichabod Crane, using Ichabod, Ichabod Crane, yes, but also seeing in him maybe some of his own traits, and seeing this mm-hmm. uh, seeing this almost as a story about how other people don't really understand him. Maybe in his in his context, his his opinion <coughs> of of Sleepy Hollow in a strange way. Sleepy Hollow might have been his vision of. Well, his his opinion of America in some ways compared to Europe. I'm not. I'm not. No, i, think, I around here. Not, He he
0: apparently wrote it mm-hmm. um, in England while he was on uh, his tour. Uh, so it's it's looking back at where you know he's been, but uh, there is this. Uh, I mean, uh, William James is. I don't know if you guys know much about him. He's. He's um, a famous American philosopher. His brother is Henry James.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: and he's got this thing. Um, he's got this sort of why America's, uh, it the U.S. really plays, and the background of you know the United States being young and different plays differently in what they're interested in, and this is this seems true of all the American philosophers. Um, I'm trying to remember who's the guy. Oh, Thoreau, right? He's got the he's got that year in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a guy who would be, if he was European, you know, at a university, uh, surrounded by books, you know, completely separated from nature, except you know for the occasional walk through the commons or whatever. Uh, and yet he's going away from that and trying to ensconce himself, you know. Almost hermit-like. There's there's a push pull of you know these these Massachusetts people, not Massachusetts. These New Yorkers have sort of been bypassed by by the American Revolution. They're still Dutch settlers.
2: They were also also almost all of the revolution was was spent with with New York in British hands. It's, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the the thought of the war was different there. The the, con- the concepts behind it, the the, the the sympathies and opinions were different. New York was almost gra- dragged grudgingly into, okay, fine, 13 colonies, very well. But, mm-hmm. Well, at least the, the, ci- the city of New York particularly. Actually, that's interesting. The city of New York compared to the state of New York itself, Ichabod oh. and uh, Sleepy Hollow.
0: Yeah, well, it mm. used to be a Dutch uh, city, and now it's...
2: I know, I'm oh. just... Huh?
0: Well, uh, there's something there's something very interesting going on because in in the story, Crane his plan is to sell this beautiful farm and move west, right? Move west, he said maybe to uh, Kentucky or something like that. It, it, he's got to move west, and it's like, why? You've got all this food that you wanted, right? <laughs> Um, well, these, these old Dutch settlers, they're not into that, right? That's not their thing. But if you're from Connecticut, that is your thing. Moving on. And, and so it, it's almost like, in the, in the way that Rip Van Winkle is, it's almost like regretting that there had to be an American Revolution, in the same way that Lovecraft is sort of an um, Anglophile... You know, stuck in Providence, um, likes Providence, likes the old parts of the country. Not really interested in going out to San Francisco and, you know, hanging out with the, the mo- new moderns. <laughs> there's um, there's something there's something very Im- important about this story, I think, and it really gets into. It's very American, I think, being a Canadian.
2: <laughs> that's it. That, that's. That's okay, isn't it? Oh, but, but no I'm just, you, you, would get, you would get that, that same, the same view as incidentally from from I, I think uh, Rip Van Winkle. It's actually more more
0: mm-hmm.
2: present, and yet what yet, it's not as though things change that drastically. When I read Rip Van Winkle and, and I'm looking and I'm reading about, oh, how things have changed. Look, this is the George Washington Tavern. It used to be the King George Tavern. The world's right. turned upside down, but I, I think like nothing has <laughs> actually changed that much, except for some of the labels. But his love of sameness is so that that bothers him. Hmm. <laughs> well,
0: yeah. I think I think that's right. But I also think like if if this story was written by uh, the author of Ivanhoe. It would be, even though, you know, he's the guy who said, yeah, go read those folktales. Notice that the response to the folktale isn't to to turn it in, into um, uh, a ghost story. It's to take the, the sort of ghosty, ghosty, sleepy beliefs of these sleepy people in this sleepy neighborhood, embosomed in the mountains of uh, the Catskills, right? It's, it's to debunk it in a way that, uh has fun with it. And I I think that's why, you know, you get the the fantasy fiction of um of uh the Yellow Brick Road, what's that story? Uh Mr oh. Lowe. Yeah. we well, no no I'm
2: trying to think trying to Listen think of to the, the author name. the author's name. Oh the author's name never comes to it, mind. It never it comes to Bob. mind. Exactly.
0: So Frank Albaum he he has a witch, right? The wicked witch of the West. But that's about it. All the other characters are, you know, there's the, the great wizard or whatever, but all the other characters are basically their new creations, right? That's the one cowardly of the I lion, really love scarecrow. About that. And it is it's an American fantasy of you know Set in Kansas, right?
2: But in, it has a very, a it has a very oddly enough, yes, it's very American. But it seems like a story. I've told someone that it seems like a story that might have been a been German of German folktale that has been adapted to an American setting. So well, to to an American audience, there are so many weird little gruesome bits to that story that. You only get if you read the book, and the book mm-hmm. is occasionally a little, a little bit gothy in its own way. The Tin Woodsman is a man who loves this woman, and the witch, to ruin his life, enchants his axe, and he hacks himself to pieces and, and chops up, chops body up his arm. And a, and a passing tinsmith gives him a tin arm and then chops off his leg and a tinsmith gives him a leg, tin leg and so on and so on and so on until finally he, all, he, all he has is his head and then he chops off his head and the tinsmith gives him a tin head and now he's got this weird philosophical thing is any part of me really the man I was? and he leaves the woman that he, w- that he was in love with because he can't he doesn't feel worthy of her of her anymore and doesn't feel that he's even the same person. And I read that little bit and I think, wow, that's, 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 that's amazing. And this story is for little children, not just the gruesomeness,
0: but it's even written as, as, as poor, you know, with a vocabulary for little children, which, which is it's astounding, but it, you're right. It, it has that. It's funny that he's looking for a heart and not a brain, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's looking for a.
2: He, he even has a st- has, has has some explanation uh, about about that uh, about how the heart is more important than the brain.
0: And I think that that's what's going on in this is is like Brombones is the hero of this story, right? And we don't want him to be because he's not the viewpoint character. We we like uh, Ichabod Crane and his his hilarious <laughs> view of reality. The, the fact that he's scared of everything, but also thinks it's
3: fascinating and fun and he's really hungry. Right? <laughs> well, I think it does say that, I mean, I, I've, I've read a lot of criticism. There's a few things that say, oh, he's kind of, you know, he's a character of the weak intellectual and he's cowardly and he's greedy. But I think, that reading the story a couple of times, Ichabod comes off I really like him because he's kind <laughs> of, you know, he likes a spooky story. But, he you know, a- where, where he tenants, though, he's not just nosing a book. Like in a lot of the adaptations, he mucks in, he, you know, he help, he can do all the chores, he can chop the wood, he can leave the cattle, he can much mind the... The kids. He, can, he can get on well with their wives and the aunties and, and the grandmas and talk with them and and he, you know he leads he leads singing practice you know what I mean and he, mm-hmm. he kind of his response to being frightened when he's he scared himself stupid with all these tales of one eyed things and haunted windows and all these other wonderful stuff that uh, haunted eat eat and haunted haunted Taunted
2: tulip tree
3: yeah. yeah
2: haunted by the ghost of uh, Andre right.
3: Yeah, that's right. Yes. yes exactly. exactly. Major Andre. Exactly.
2: Yes. It's, uh, there,
3: there's uh, there's a
0: lot to love about him, but I think he's he's like he's an unconscious or not self-conscious intellectual about this. So the fact that he he's reading that book of which which stories and yet he's this is this is why I think the that 1999 movie fails is that it's got it says he's a man of science and yet he's really afraid right uh, he he's not our our character's not so much a man of science as he's he's <laughs> when er- washington irving writes about him washington irving is very aware of how funny this is because you know when he's hitting his students he doesn't hit the the ones that can't take it but he also Um, He 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 says to them while he's hitting them. You know you're going to thank me every day of your life from now on. Um, And and there's just that little. Well, uh, he actually believes that, right? He just doesn't. He doesn't think of what he's what he's doing. And yet there's an admiration that comes from Washington Irving's depiction. Washington Irving admires him, and we do too. Flat. He's he's fundamentally flawed in so many ways.
3: <laughs> well, to so the about the, the capital punishment thing, I think a good uh, um, comparison is Wackford Squeers in Dickens, who is the archetypal schoolmaster. you know, you step out of line, he canes you with an image of your life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, uh, I came across. Um, on a website, this annotated version of Sleepy Hollow, where people mm-hmm. write... The, one of the annotations a bit about the uh, the capital punishment was uh, um, he, came the sh- he punishes the strong because he is weak. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I... I don't think that's what it... No, is. I don't I think. I think... Really, Irving's making the point that, I mean, he, he's a wise schoolmaster. He knows that the kid who is really frightened of being in trouble doesn't need... Six of the best, maybe even one of the best. However, mm-hmm. the kid who's going to be kicking off and testing your authority, you need to put him in his place. Mm-hmm. And I might be a bit unfashionable, but I do know from having great friends with teachers, a lot of them say, kind of, you know, it is spare the rod and spoil the child. It's kind of, you know. It's kind I think of, that line's exactly <laughs> in here as well. Yeah. It is. it is, And I know it's kind of it's an unfashionable view, but I know kind of a lot of teachers, you know, privately will say, if you just whack some of these little bastards so that we wouldn't have a lot of the trouble later on if they'd had six of the best when they were ten, they wouldn't be undisciplinable when they're sixteen. Yeah. Well, uh,
0: I, I don't that's a separate debate. I, uh, if <coughs> classes are so small, if I have more than one student, I can, uh, I can just send the kid out of the room. And that's, <laughs> that that's turns into, uh, as far as I can tell, that turns into punishment of mm-hmm. uh, being not allowed to participate uh, mm-hmm. turns into punishment. But I see other teachers in my school and their students don't, they're tarrying in the hallway, you know, they are absolutely not wanting to go back in and making excuses to go to the bathroom and get some water and mm-hmm. can't we have a break and, uh, you know, <laughs> this, is, uh, uh, this is not a story exactly about schooling, but it's very much uh, we're learning something <laughs> we okay
2: we're dancing around the issue too much finally come to the point Jesse Willis how often do you beat your charges <laughs>
0: I, I try not to at all
2: I know you try not to how often do you succeed, do you succeed? I'm more of a, do you a squisher
0: than a beater I, I, I don't think there's any uh, requirement that uh, that the students be hit just as long as they can be squished mm. a bit <laughs>
3: it's funny I was on a podcast last year about we're doing um uh Starship Troopers mm-hmm. and uh, Robert Highland in these future society the, the corporal punishment in school operates slightly differently is you don't punish the kid for being a bad kid, you punish the parent for being a bad parent. A I did that with a teacher. I did that with a teacher, I was mentioning that to teacher, a lot of teachers going, actually yes, rather than be allowed to came the kids, we'd much rather be cane the parents. <laughs> uh. Is. so hard to
2: work out because honestly, what are you going to do? Nobody wants to wants to get a certain number of parents and a certain number of children and put them together and go. Okay, now you raise this kid and you whack him with a stick every time he does everything wrong. You raise this kid. You tell the, you don't say anything to this kid when he does anything. Indeed, give him a cookie no matter what he does. You fight and, and then and then twenty years later say, okay, who turned out the most normal? because it 's not just raising, I, I think it also has something to do with brain chemistry. Some people are just naturally going to going to react more well violently to one situation or another based on their ancestry, uh, who, wh- wh- what's what's in their past? If you have, I think if, if, you, if you, have, you
0: name your kid Brom Bones, he's going to be a.
2: <laughs> Rock I, R- 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 I R- often look around at people pain. surrounding me who are clearly criminals, and I think you know what would have helped this guy if this were if this were the Middle Ages and he were a Viking, he would fit in perfectly. <laughs> he's going to go to prison now, but if he were a Viking, he he would be considered a hero. Just, just to con, just something that you see
0: there's a show uh called sons of anarchy (laughs) um the the way i always i I sometimes get it confused with the show vikings because (laughs) the, the, the all the all the male characters are completely bearded right and they they ride around beating the crap out of people and and uh you know exacting vengeance and stuff like that and it is. It's. It's. You know. You. You can tell him. You, you walking down the street. You say, okay. I. I know where that guy's coming from. He. He puts his badge right on his body. Right. It's. It's there, to be seen. Um, Ichabod is a fictional character. The first name is biblical, but it makes me think of uh, ichthyology. It makes me think <laughs> of a fish, which I guess is not. There's not a lot of fish getting eaten in this story.
3: A lot. But uh,
0: he is a crane. Yeah. So. Mm. Um, the other names, like, uh, Von Ripper, that's a good name, and Von Brunt is, is actually Brom Bones' real name, Von Tassel. Um, but apparently, uh, there was a real guy named, uh, Ichabod Crane, who was a, uh, civil, uh, no, he wasn't a Civil War general, he would have been a, uh, I guess, uh, War of 1812 general? Apparently he met him.
3: Yeah, yeah. And there are lots of Von Tassel's in Tarry Tarrytown. No doubt. Um mm. but I do I do think the names are wonderfully say, evocative. I mean Ichabod Crane, he crane he is, you know, described as bird like uh, totally. uh you know, Van Tassel Tassel is a luxurious trimming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know their home is Brombones and Brunt, you know, that's the, yep. the, the impact of force is to bear the brunt,
0: isn't it? Absolutely. There's there's um I started making a list of all the birds that show up in the story, and there are dozens.
2: Ichabod B. Crane, War of eighteen twelve, he met in Sackett's Har- Harbor, New York. Sorry, I'd never heard that story, so I wanted to, do, to check really quickly.
0: Yeah, there's a picture <laughs> of him there. He doesn't look exactly like uh, our Ichabod Crane,
2: but I think he um, just liked the name and just. It's made, a pretty great name. It maybe just said the name aloud. Uh, uh, Bit, bit by bit as time passes oh I can't wait to spend that name to no put doubt. it in a story uh, the story starts with a quote
0: from a, something I'm not familiar with are you guys familiar with it
3: the Castle of Indolence and, um, uh, I only know a little bit about it this kind of um, this is really, it was an epic poem that was kind of uh, one of the. So the key so, gothic that's... works because it's mentioned in quite a few other and quoted in quite a few of the other um classic goth- gothic novels uh, and, um, and th- this was kind of including this at the start i mean it's it's an it's a very apposite quote but it's also uh, Irvine, uh flashing his gothic the story's gothic credentials mm-hmm it's um
0: it is it, it it's it's American Gothic, I guess is what we would have to call it. A pleasing land of drowsy head. It was of dreams that wave before the half-shut eye, and of gay castles in the clouds that pass, forever flushing round the summer sky. But actually, we're in autumn. This is very clearly autumn. Very, um, very much about the harvest, it seems. I, I think it's, it's beautiful. It makes me want to visit Sleepy Hollow. And uh, upstate New York.
2: A good book will do that. Particularly if it exists. I mean, trust me, if there was a Middle Earth, <laughs> ha, you would want small. to go there. At least
0: there are a most- lot of people visiting New Zealand just for just for the possibility that it's like that.
2: Aye. Well, there are certain areas. You, 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 you get, It gets ruined if you realize that just beyond that awesome green meadow is a shopping center.
0: <laughs> I also got a a little hint of um, in the li- early line. It says the rustic lads are called the Sleepy Hollow boys, and that made me think a little bit about um, Twin Peaks and uh, the the Bookhouse Boys. Uh, obviously, not exactly the same kind of gothic uh, <laughs> horror, no, exactly. All the good old has,
3: boys of uh, Dukes of Passage. exactly. <laughs> That's um, what's
0: but it? It, it's true. I mean, the thing is, is it it's got that small town feel, right? All of these mm-hmm. stories do, and um, what's missing from Dukes of Hazard is the big the big town guy, right? So in Twin Peaks, we've got our our viewpoint character of the FBI agent from the big city, and he comes to the small town and learns about it. Um, Dukes of Hazard, I don't think there is that. There's they're all from that place, and they. Uh, which is it supposed to be Tennessee or where wherever it's supposed to be?
2: It doesn't matter. Every, <laughs> I, I, every, I think it's southern, southern California. State, every Southern state likes to pretend that it's them.
0: <laughs> I, I think I think it's due for a remake. I've got a I've got no, a
2: script. Let him <laughs> die. Involves let him die. Horses. God in heaven.
0: He's he's gonna be driving a Camaro <laughs> or a Mustang. I don't
2: know. He's driving a Mini Cooper.
0: No, no, no. It has to be a pony car, right?
2: No, no. It's a Mini. It's 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 a it's a Mini Mini Cooper. Hazard County has become gentrified. It's a Mini Cooper, but <laughs> on the top is the Confederate flag on the top of the Mini Cooper, and it's it yes, it's become gentrified, and there's a there's country clubs here, and everything is everything has been cleaned up, and. Like, we can ne- we can negotiate the product placement later.
0: But yeah, of course, <laughs> but the meeting pitch I- I'm going in with uh, the headless headless uh, pony car driver. Uh,
2: just, he's gonna it, if you wanted to modernize it legitimately, just have more references to NASCAR, and it pretty much fits. <laughs> Speaking of I- which. Brom seems like it seems seems like a character you, you know that those people exist and they always have existed because you meet those sort of people at at football games they, 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 they're they're you know they're footballers. They're, they're NASCAR mm-hmm. fans. They're loud and raucous, and they tend to. Brom Bones is a It's an archetype in real life. Who I'm certain that if I were dropped in the middle of the woods, I would rather have Brom with me than Ichabod, because Brom probably can hunt and Brom probably can survive. And Ichabod can't. But son of a gun, my dying conversations with Ichabod will be so much more satisfying <laughs> than than Brom going. So who you root for? Hmm. Uh, uh, what car do you like? It, uh, Brom, shut up and get us some food.
0: <laughs> so, I want to I wanna ask this question with something we've avoided. Um, have you guys seen the new television version of this show, of uh, this uh, story?
3: <sighs> I I've only ha- seen the first two, and that was it.
0: <laughs> That's enough. Mm-hmm. Don't bother with any more. It's really awful. Um, I think. The, the I dare not
2: to say that, because be- I know some people who like it. The problem is, it's not my thing. Kind of like Sons of Anarchy. That's not my thing at all. I can't get into that show. But I know some people absolutely adore it, so when it comes to Sleepy Hollow, it, yeah, yeah, I, I no, I'm certain you like it. That That's great. I, I <laughs> urge you to enjoy it. Just please don't tell me about every episode, because honestly speaking, I don't
0: care. Well, I'm not going to talk about every episode because yeah. I, I stopped watching it after uh, the first or second episode, and and then I heard that they they did some Lovecraft in the second season, and I went and watched that, and I thought, my God, I've wasted the 45 minutes of my life. I'm never going to get back. <laughs> it wasn't even 45; it was you know 25 yeah. minutes. Whatever, but it was awful. But the the one thing that they did really well is make it pretty. So when you see the headless horseman walking around, you know you can see, oh wow, you, there's no uh, lines where the head should be. You know it's it's good. how do they green screened it or whatever? Oh, it's so beautiful. So we've got this technology to to make everything pretty. You know the 1999 movie, oh so gorgeous. But what we can't seem to do is is make it. Make it good. I don't think it could be a television show. Could it? This story pro- uh, properly? Because it's 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 an episode. It's not... It's like a... It could be a, an episode of Scooby-Doo, or...
3: Well, it, it would suit kind of um, uh, an old-style sort of Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, mm. um, Armchair Theater, that kind of episodic kind of, you know, a different story every week. You'd do it perfectly in you know, about, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes um both of them that I don't think you can really expand this um no I mean, the more you expand it the more um you have to bring in stuff that's you know just outside the story there's not enough in the story to to expand as it is because there's otherwise there's you know not there's, not there's nothing there I mean it's it's fine as it is it, it it's a story that's enduringly popular mm-hmm. um I mean, uh, apart from our earlier caveats of maybe <laughs> uh, giving it a, a stronger sort of a twist to tie up the Brom Bones thing, there's not a lot else you can really do to it. Um, I mean, it's one of those things, it's kind of, it's it's meant as a bit of fun. It's, it's a tall story, you know, And a, as we get in the postscript, and you're not meant to believe for half of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um it's, you know, it's, it's like a proper old related tale that it's, it's a piece of entertainment. It's, it's, not, it's not meant to be a huge epic saga. <laughs>
2: I think that the story is pretty self-contained. I, something, mm-hmm. that, something that I might think was entertaining if it were done right were, say, a, um, a Alan Moore-esque League of Extraordinary Gentlemen sort of concept from the time period featuring Ichabod Crane post-Sleepy uh, Hollow. Just, he, he yes. afraid of everything. <laughs> well, no, no, no. You know, him inter interacting with with other characters that you may know that well. Okay, that people who are aware of fiction of the time period may know and love. Uh, just mm. let's see.
0: Well, there, there is a there is a uh, you know there is a certain segment of the population who. Who reads these things and is interested it's just not a large percentage
2: i think there's more story inv- that involving ichabod crane uh, maybe brom bones i suppose a person could breathe some something into that but uh, but well but i don't i think that the story itself is nice self-contained and pretty much done uh, if you if you were going to change anything it would have to be something that affects the story itself mm-hmm. um uh, my suggestion about having Brom Bones encounter and being ki- maybe maybe like the post but the postscript to this would be Brom Bones encountering and being ki- and being pursued and killed by the headless by the headless horseman after the fact. But, yeah. I think variation, I've, but I've when the even. story is done, isn't don't they reference Brom Bones wind up uh, marrying? Uh, yep. Yeah, They're exactly. Married. So you'd have you couldn't cha- you couldn't really add anything to it without changing the story the story gives you the story itself and then tells you what happened to all the other characters i suppose you could come up with something completely separate unless you want to just completely retcon the story itself well one of
0: one of the things that i've seen every variation in all the adaptations i've seen and heard and read there's one there's one where katrina is behind everything she manipulated uh, Brom Bones into marrying her because he was sort of dilly-dallying on that. And the way she did that was by expressing interest in in uh, Ichabod Crane, who she's actually not interested in. Um, I'm not sure how much in the actual story that she has any role to play other than just to have... She was one dance with him and she gets some sing- singing lessons. Mm-hmm. It's not like um, he's... You know he's getting secret love letters saying i I want you know your body or anything like that. It's mostly in his head that he this is his plan he's gonna have her porkers and her her her, her f- <laughs> fowl and they're gonna uh he's gonna inherit the estate and then they're gonna sell it and move off to, to uh
2: Western. the wilds, land. The wilds of Kentucky yeah. At this point in time, Kentucky and Ohio were the wilds, the frontier.
0: Uh, I, you know, the, I think that the the best part of this story is is when it is so self-referential when it says something like, um, "If it can be said that any place in the United States could be haunted, this place is haunted. It's been haunted forever, uh, uh, perhaps thirty years." <laughs> <laughs> It's like, um, because the country is so young and you have to go to the oldest parts. So you go to the Dutch and the Dutch, they have these old these ancient legends from 15 years ago. And it's, yep. that's, that's, he's just got such a great sense of humor.
2: Do you believe I, in hauntings?
0: I believe that this is the time of year when you should read this story and, and get, the, get the joke. No, I am. I don't believe that anything can be haunted.
1: Mm. I have
2: I have the unique belief of believing in hauntings, but not particularly believing in ghosts.
0: Oh, well, people can be haunted, absolutely, but it's, it's, they're, they're haunting themselves. Right? It's mm. the, the ghost I'll, in their head that's I'll, not...
2: I'll tell you the story sometime of, of cleaning this house and having weird weird feelings in one specific room and only finding out afterwards what had happened there, and my boss having not told me specifically because he thought I wouldn't take the job to clean the house. It's, it, it's, I don't feel there was anything conscious ever, ever. I mean, no actual person, but just one room where I felt horrible and cleaned and felt horrible. And I kept having to lift my feet up really high while walking on this green shag carpet because my mental image was something is dragging itself behind me whenever I walked normally and my, my shoes would make this sound in the carpet. And I, later, I thought, I, the whole time I thought, I'm being stupidly sensitive. And later, after the fact, my boss says, so did you see anything creepy? And in that specific room, a month prior, this elderly retired couple, well, they lived in this house. She had a heart attack and died in the middle of the night. The husband woke, found her, had a heart attack, collapsed on the ground, and crawled into the middle of the living room. And that was where the stain was, because they hadn't been found for two weeks. And I had said when I showed up at the house, am I supposed to clean that stain? Because I didn't bring the right stuff. That's not on my worksheet. And he said, no, no, they're just pulling out the carpet. I thought of nothing specific. And it could simply be, well, of course you would imagine that, or the sound effect. But only in that one room did I have the feeling, the imagery. I saw nothing Nothing touched me. Nothing spoke to me. In that one room, I felt horrible and kept thinking something was dragging itself on the ground. I I have a feeling that it's possible for strong emotion to possibly leave a sort of fingerprint, but I don't (laughs) actually think that there's anything where I go into an old house and, oh my goodness, there's a person there who is aware, 85 years ago my throat was slit and I'm walking around spooking people. That. that (laughs) I I I have a feeling maybe in some scientific sense it's possible for some bit to be left behind. Stone
0: tapes, right? Exactly. uh, That's (laughs)
2: what uh, that's what I think of. That's one of the reasons I really like the stone tapes.
0: Although it's more probably the wood frame tapes in this case.
2: (laughs) In in this case, it would be if I were to write write a story about this, it would be called the Green Shag Carpet.
0: Ooh, sounds good. (laughs) Actually,
2: that would be a good story. It would, yeah.
0: I think you need to work on the ending a little bit and add some... Uh, and now my neighbor is in- installing green shag carpet in my bedroom. Something <laughs> creepy like that. It's like, what? No! Don't! Or whatever. <laughs> what
3: about you, Mr. Jim Moon? You've been creeped by some uh, creepy creepness? Oh, I've been really many places that I've considered been... Um, I've had an atmosphere. Uh, I know... I mean, a friend of mine used to be a builder, and he has some stories of um you know he, he firmly believes that some houses are haunted. Um, I mean, we are dealing with frankly, rough- ass builders who aren't the kind of people who are who you know, are going to get spooked by things. and he tells a story of like one house in particular that um uh, all like four of the team he was on working different places used to have these sort of casual kind of figures watching them. And they're all getting more and more creeped out until the boss actually said, right, well, I've, you know, he, I've had this experience. He goes, well, I had this here, I had this there. And he said, right, well, we just bodge the job up and we leave. <laughs> because, you know, they couldn't stand working there. It was just really, you know, call it, you really like a bad place. And I think there's a lot. I mean, Stephen King writes about it in Salem's Lot, the idea of In The Shining, and he's getting this stone tape idea that, and I don't think it's that much of a stretch because you can, like, walk into a room where someone's supposed to be in an argument and you can, you know, you, can, you know, there's something in the air, you can sense it. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I do think that can linger and permeate. And, uh... And I, just, I, just, I, I mean, I, I, I know a friend who's actually a scientist who's seen poltergeist activity and stuff like this. So it's kind of... You know, everyone has to judge for the evidence for themselves. But, you know, for me, I, I know people I consider to be credible... <laughs> and uh, hard-headed, who can tell you a strange story or two. And so I'm sort of, well, let's not rule anything out here. <laughs> I think the question is, is uh, as as John says, it's with well, the supernatural and a ghost. is kind of, well, if you say, do you believe a ghost or not? We go, what, well, what, how are we defining ghost? Are we talking like a stone tape recording or, or you know, Brom Bones <laughs> still walking around pulling his <laughs> pranks? <laughs> I, I, I believe that people
0: are more brom bonesy than uh, than actual ghosty, but uh, I think, you know, you can smell stuff that uh, makes you on an unconscious level uh, have a feeling, right? Not know where that feeling is sourced from, but uh, I, I liked it in, you know, this is 1790 or so is the story setting, and then the, you've got the, uh, published in 1820, so you've got You've got not that old a country and you're, you've got the oldest part of that, not that old a country. Um, and so there are you know there's a little bit of spooking happening, but Europe's got to be a lot more spookier than that. I mean, you've got Roman ghosts and you've got ancient Greek ghosts and you've got uh, you know Celtic ghosts and then you've got the modern ghosts. Uh, out here, there's you know, the old buildings are about hundred so years old if we're lucky. And most of the get, them get pulled down. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, it doesn't actually say in this story. But I've never heard of the haunted beach. I've, it's always indoors. It's always
2: I've, I can know. Um, I, I I no people talk about haunted us,
0: hollow, haunted forest,
3: but not haunted beach. A haunted beach, yes. Haunted lake. Oh no, no, I've heard of haunted beaches. There's haunted, haunted beaches beach. in Cornwall. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> ghosts, ghosts of shipwrecks and um, uh, drowned people appear and. Uh, uh, I mean, it's one of those if you look at like kind of maps in not so much in America, but certainly in across Europe um, and even into Asia, you'll find place names that, um, you know, reference the fact that this has this area as it's associated with weird things happen. And, you know, there's lots of things. the devil's this, the devil's that because they are haunted, you know, in some way. And strange things have happened there. <laughs>
2: I, I honestly think it just—if it acquires a bad reputation, anything can become haunted, at least in, in, in the public and the public mind. The little lake in the center of the town I live in, uh, named Center Lake, uh-huh, is some. Some people will talk about it being haunted by all the people that, that have drowned there, and how they'd ra- how they'd rather swim in a swimming pool as opposed to a lake because the, because. They, they, you you read stories about somebody somebody finding a body, or uh, there was a fellow locally uh, a loan sh- well loan shark yeah you would call him a loan shark he called himself a private bank in 1927 he disappeared on his way on his way walking home and it's interesting to read this old story and to say it happened right in the neighborhood I live in he was walking down what the road I take to get home and. He disappeared and checking his and they find his hat sodden with blood, and on the frozen surface of Center Lake, they find a fantail of blood and a place where, this, where the ice has been broken open. And it gradually comes to, comes to the police that this fellow was a loan shark, and that there were dozens of people in this town who owed him a certain amount of money, and they knew he a headless carried borrower money. got him. They <laughs> knew he carried money with him. According to his home records, he had more than $4,000 with him when he disappeared. In 1927, $4,000. And at his house, there were all these coffee cans just filled with rolled small bills, almost $5,000 worth of that. He was never found. He, has, he was never... Nothing was ever really hit. People assume his body was under Center Lake. But you couldn't really bust up the ice and look... So they couldn't drag, except for with hooks, immediately under the surf, under the edge of the lake itself, and they couldn't find anything. People locally who know the story are fully aware that somewhere in Center Lake there's a skeleton with an old overcoat, probably without the money though, uh, looking to collect on his old debts. That would be an interesting <laughs> story because it's always assumed that that. People in town, some people were fully aware of what happened and when you read the story, a, a um outside investigator had to be called in because the police because the the police captain apparently just kept yeah it's pretty simple he he must have run away. no, no, he must have left, and he <laughs> ran away, and that was it and After the fact, it turned out the police he, the police captain owed him money, ah. so it just created this bizarre feeling where for something like 30 years in this town, he was our Jimmy Hoffa. The police would, would occasionally receive a, a shadowy tip as to where they thought his body was actually located, and that he didn't actually get away, or, or that he didn't actually get killed, he, he, he speared away. And that's how folklore becomes enmeshed. It's just, we live in a time, time period, I talk to local people, and only one or two people are even aware of this anymore, but remove the distraction of television? Remove the distraction of the internet, the radio, and if we were sti- and if we had didn't have that, everybody would know that story. Nobody would swim mm-hmm. in Center Lake at night. Well, that's that's, that's what Iakov heart does. does
0: right? He goes from house to house, telling all the news and telling ghost stories. And every week he changes houses because they're all putting him up. Right, all his students' parents put him up. He doesn't sleep in that in that schoolroom. And right, it's too cold. He he stays in their homes for a week, you know. Fixes the fences and pets the children, and then tells stories from his. Uh...
2: He seems like such a nice guy. Why is he? <laughs> Why does she settle for brom Bones? <laughs> wow, well, he's
3: he's large and strapping.
2: Yes, I know. I'm certain he is large and strapping. A man of great parts,
3: as they would say. <laughs> yeah. There's probably a a man of great drunkenness and unable to utilize them. uh, Shakespeare said, (laughs) Ale promoteth the desire but taketh away all performance.
2: (laughs) Oh, God, that's a good quote.
0: Diogenes
2: was caught masturbating in public once, and someone admonished him, and he said, If only I could alleviate my hunger by rubbing my belly. (laughs) There are just certain quotes that like, oh, that's perfect. If only this person had said nothing else that would live forever.
0: This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.